Audio conversation with Christopher Knowles, recorded Sunday, December 2nd, 2012. Hey, this is a long talk between Chris and I. Uh, we logged in at just about three hours. I, In the editing process, I snipped out about 15 minutes of that. The, the focus of this conversation is a series of movies, many of them made-for-TV movies, that appeared in the 1970s. That would have been a very impressionable time of both my youth and of Chris's youth. Uh, these movies have a weird intermixing uh, kind of tangle of the UFO phenomena, weird occult stuff, uh, kind of post-Rosemary's Baby devil worship stuff, uh, conspiracy stuff, uh, and there's this kind of subtle cross-pollination of all of this stuff that I remember being very haunted by as a child, and now looking back as an adult, I, I don't know quite what it all means. It, my, my sense is that someone was tapped into something, or that that something was welling up and just needed to find a place in our in our collective psyche. Chris, in his very skillful ways, uh, puts it that it that this is a software issue instead of a hardware issue. The implication being that it's not a conspiracy to sneak this stuff into the populace. It's it's somewhat it's welling up from some other source. Uh, the list of movies that we look into, just dissect TV shows. Uh, it it just goes on and on and on. The, I I typed up a long list that I was kind of shocked at how long it was, and that's part of the show notes, uh, the, the, the long collection of what we try to decipher. Um, I don't know if we make much headway, but uh, this is exactly the kind of dialogue that I love. I felt like I'm very much influenced by uh, Chris and the, the output from his blogs, plural now. He has been linking things on his blog. He has been embedding YouTube videos. Uh, I have been taking this stuff very seriously. If, if he suggests something, a movie, a TV show that I should watch, I make an effort. I watch it. Uh, I am usually dazzled by what I'm seeing, uh, especially uh, he'll drop some, some hints before stepping into the process of being the viewer and uh, there's something haunting going on in the subtext of many of the things that he's tapped into. Now, let me also add that uh, just a couple days ago, I did a long interview with Peter Robbins, uh, UFO author and researcher, and the subject of that conversation was movies also. Uh, these two audio interviews make pretty good uh, companions side by side, and, and we don't uh, overlap at all. Uh, two totally separate conversations. Uh, Peter Robbins, Christopher Knowles, and myself know a lot about movies. We also know a lot about the UFO phenomena. And I feel I can recommend both these conversations highly. Um, I think that the, the, the subject of cinema and the UFO phenomena are, are somehow uh, intertwined in a way that fascinates me. As I said before, this is a long interview. No reason to dwell on this introduction. Please enjoy. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. I'm looking forward to this one. My pleasure, Mike. Always good, good to be here. Good. We did a little bit of pre-chat uh, here that, that I may or may not include some little bits of that. I might tack it on to the end. But um, the, a bunch of stuff is going on. Uh, 
uh, and I've been sort of following your lead uh, on some of the stuff you've been posting uh, in, in involving movies, many of them from the 1970s, which is a which is a decade that is dear to my heart as far as and TV movies, by the way, too. Yeah, TV movies from the 70s. So, um, uh, and but but before we get into that, the, you for ages for five years now have been keeping a blog called The Secret Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems as if the curtain has fallen on that uh, that blog, and uh, a new curtain is rising. And uh, it, there's a secondary blog called the Solar Satellite that you've started, and which is what, what what's the context of all that? Well, the Solar Satellite's been around for a long time. Um, the Solar Satellite was sort of my news feed before I started putting a lot of the news stories on Facebook. Um, but basically, I wrote you know pretty in depth on my reasoning behind this, but what it really kind of boils down to is that the secret sun was really just becoming like an unpaid job. And I, I felt like it was becoming too restrictive in a lot of ways. Um, and I kind of painted myself into a corner and also, I mean, that it was just getting too big and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And, and a lot of people were like, you know, I really like what you're writing and I, and I want to go back and read more, but it's like, it's just so huge and it's so intimidating and overwhelming. And I, I just have a hard time trying to wait through this. You know, you'd write these huge posts and, um, yeah, I just felt like it had just grown. It was becoming a Frankenstein. And I also felt like I just had sort of gotten locked into writing certain kinds of articles and I wanted to write about different things. So basically, it's just a way of, I don't know, just kind of clearing the decks and just getting a fresh start. I mean, there'll probably be a lot of stuff that's, you know, just like the Secret Sun on the solar satellite, you know, and maybe there won't be. I mean, I want to have the option where I I just felt that uh, the Secret Sun was just too established um, with its identity. And I wanted to just break, break loose of that a bit and... Because it was just getting very difficult to write, to be honest with you. It was, it was becoming almost impossible to to write. And, and I just wanted to get back to researching and, and reading and, and all these sort of things without constantly having it be, you know, material for the secret sun. It was just, it was too overwhelming. It just got to be um, bigger than I could handle yeah, and, and I recognize there's something a little playful about uh, the the posts on the uh, solar satellite. Uh, you know, most of them have been just basically kind of movie. I don't even know for reviews is the right term. Um, just you know, explorations into some some movies, some of them fairly obscure. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've been sort of digging that. And I, what I've been doing is making an effort. And it's really interesting. I don't think I would have been able to pull this off even just a couple of years ago. There's so much stuff online now. Um, yeah. And I have a combination of I've got little Netflix uh, where I can stream this stuff and then I can just watch some of these things online. Um, and it just the availability of these of these what, what would have been just a few years ago, completely unavailable stuff. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's like all these um, Hammer films and especially all these TV movies, which we're going to talk about today. Um, some of these things just I couldn't believe that they got made. Um, you know, the level of sophistication in the writing and just the level of weirdness is something that you don't see anymore. Um, and, and you know what I think that is, is I think that there's like the weirdness is taking place in the special effects now. 
and then no one no one really cares about the script you know like the special effects is like comes is dominant and the script is subordinate and and back you know whatever in the 70s uh you know you couldn't there was special effects were pretty low budget and whatever like sort of laughable by today's standards so you know what was you had to infer everything through through good storytelling yeah and really what's happening today just like everything else is that um, movies are, are dying um, because of the, all these mergers and uh, centralization and, and just corporatization that you don't have a lot of different independent movie cinemas. You don't have a lot of different independent movie distributors and, and smaller uh, production studios. Everything has to be big now. And the problem is that with this current system, you have to hit a home run uh, or, or you're dead in the water. And a lot of people don't realize that these big ticket movies that they put out basically pay for um, everything else, that everything else loses money. And then, you know, a Star Wars film, for example, is what keeps the lights on. So I think that they've painted themselves into a corner because of this blockbuster mentality. And we didn't see that before. Yeah, that, uh, that started with, with Star Wars. Or yeah. It started with Jaws, technically. Uh, in the 70s, yeah, there's kind of a, 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 a dividing line between intimate, low-budget, competent storytelling, and then the you know the, the modern age of the mega blockbuster. Yeah, I, I would actually say Jaws was the real starting point. Jaws was the the, the, the game changer, and then Star Wars basically came in and you know kicked the door open forever, but. Yeah. It's so, it's gotten completely out of hand that, you know, you'll have 30 people hired to write a movie, uh, you know, and 26 of them will never see a word that they've written appear on screen. You know, they're making great, great money. So, you know, good for them, I guess. But what happens is that anything interesting is getting filtered out. And I, I wish I could say that, you know, the same thing wasn't happening in other media as well. And I think that that whole process has changed the expectations of the audience, that the audience has allowed itself to be programmed by this kind of thinking. And, you know, just a, 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 I'd say almost a paralyzing conservatism has, has set in that you did not see when things were more open and, and you could make a movie for, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And, and what happened in the late sixties in a way was, um, easy rider came along. So here's a total low budget movie, made a ton of money, uh, created by these, you know, uh, flamboyant artist types, you know, and, uh, and then that set the scene for, um, uh, less than a decade of, of, uh, you know, experimental films that, you know, that, that were treated seriously. Experimental maybe is the wrong term, but, you know, sort of more, more, a little more cutting edge than, than what would have been the standard Hollywood fare. Well, and I think also that you had writers who had been, who had markets for writing that, you know, say a guy like Richard Matheson, 
could sell his stories to the pulps and support himself and learn his craft and get good at what he did. You know, there were all these feeding feeder systems that allowed people to learn how to tell stories. And I, I really don't see that anymore. I am just utterly shocked by the, the in, in inability for, for most writers today to, to tell a coherent story. And oh. I, I really think, you know, and a lot of people are going to disagree with this, but I really think that this whole idea of the serial, all these serials that we see that, you know, everybody loves, like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and all these sort of things, I, I just find it tremendously lazy because what you're constantly doing is kicking the can down the road. You're just telling a, a, this endless middle of a story that nothing is ever resolved, that there's no three-act structure, there's there's no dramatic tension because it's just all bits of a story just endlessly serialized. It's a soap opera. I mean, they're basically, it, all of those are soap operas. Yeah. Soap opera. and I don't like soap operas. And, and I'll tell you something, you know, people say, are you watching Game of Thrones? Are you watching this? Are you watching that? And I'll tell them, I said, listen, I don't like soap operas. I, I am very conservative, I guess, in that way that I like a, sit down and watch a story that I don't need a flow chart for, that I don't need to get out, you know, my graphs and, and who is, you know, related to who and, and, and what's their conflict. There are so many different storylines in all these different shows that it's, it's impossible to follow. And I do, I, I really do think it's a symptom of, of a weakness in writing, not a symptom of strength, that you're constantly kicking the can down the road, that you're not setting up a story and building to a climax and then a resolution, you know, within that 45 minutes or an hour, you know, on cable. And I think that's another reason that we're just not seeing really interesting things happen anymore. You know, the kind of things that, you know, magic will happen, that, that strange ideas start to filter in. You know, you, you have a guy who, who I think really showed promise, a guy like Richard Kelly who did Donnie Darko and, and, and Southland Tales and, and The Box, and The Box is a movie that I love, um, and was uh, actually filmed uh, you know my old hometown, my old home stomping grounds to say, um, but he's too quirky. I mean, the audience just—you know—he can bring the magic, so to speak. But the audience just is, is trained to resist that now, and it's—it's it's very sad. It, it speaks to, I think, a profound malaise on a deeper level, you know, in culture. Yeah. Hey, let's um, let's just start. Uh, I got a list of movies here. Let's just start with one. Here's one that was. This is kind of near and dear to. Uh, uh, my own, well, I, I stumbled on this one called A Stranger Within, uh, starring Barbara Eden, and it was scripted by Richard Matheson and based on a short story of his from 1953. Um, yeah, called, called Trespass. Yeah, I wrote a long uh, uh, post on this, and then it was originally posted on um, Silver Screen Saucers, a site kept by Robbie Graham. And mm-hmm. then, uh, and then I reposted it on my own site, and then added like, good grief! It must have been like fifty. You know, the, you know, it's half again as long. Um, so I almost doubled it in size, uh, just with, you know, even more like weird remnant, resonant. I don't even know what to call it, like baggage or nuttiness or, or you know, stuff that was just so. This thing, like this, you know, somewhat dismissible made-for-TV movie. Um, you know, made on a low budget, uh, kind of set me off. And, you know, like I ended up writing like 35 pages on this thing. 
Well, it certainly, you know, hits straight into what you've been blogging about, you know, these past years. I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and oftentimes in very, and, you know, in, in it, I'll, I'll tell you, it crosses over to the stuff you've been blogging about. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because I think with a guy like Matheson, I mean, he's a brilliant guy. And there's, there's no doubt about it. And, and he's also just, he's picking things up. You know, he's one of these guys who's like an antenna. And when you're, when you're creating something, I don't think a lot of people realize this. Um, when you're creating s- stories and things like that, you really do enter into this trance state, you know, if you're good. If, you, if, you, if you're good at what you do, you, you, you're opening yourself up and the story is, is letting itself be told through you. Um, you know, you start to hear these voices in your head and things like that. And the, the fascinating thing about this story is that this is a very obscure story and a very obscure film, but really ties into something that became, you know, like a huge deal with when, you know, when Whitley's book got big, you know, some 10 or 12 years later, uh, maybe 13 years later. I'm not quite sure exactly when. Uh, yeah, it was about 13 or 14 years later. Yeah, when cause yeah. it was a combination of Whitley's book and Bud Hopkins' book, Intruders. They, they both came out side by side. And, uh, you know, that in essence, those two books ushered in, you know, the modern age of the UFO abduction kind of mania. But this really cuts back to what I was talking about a lot on the blog. And that's this whole idea of the, you know, the elusive companions that stories like this would be put in a, in a separate context, you know, not necessarily a science fiction context. Um but it's the same phenomenon. And I, you know, you read a book like Wonders in the Sky that uh, Chris Outback did with, um, with Jacques Vallée. And then, you know, Jacques also did Passport Port Magonia. That this is something that's been around, you know, for a very, very long time. You know, been around before we had science fiction, before we had mass media. Okay, here, let me just give a little plot rundown real quick for this movie. So The Stranger Within is uh, was part of uh, the ABC Tuesday Night Movie of the Week series, where they would put a different movie on each each uh, week. Um, there were these made-for-TV, fairly low-budget uh, films, and that's where you know uh, people like Steven Spielberg got their start. Um, with Duel. With Duel, also a, also a Richard Matheson script, yeah, or based on one of his short stories. Um, so the stranger within is, is a pretty sparse plot. There's only a few characters. It's a husband and wife. The wife is played by Barbara Eden, you know, from I dream of Jeannie. And, and, uh, she tells her husband she's pregnant. Now the husband has had a vasectomy so that, you know, there's like all kinds of marital tension that arises because she can't possibly be pregnant. You know, she would have had to have been cheating on him, and she you know, is convinced that she hasn't. Uh, little by little, as the plot proceeds, things get stranger and stranger. Uh, we step-by-step uh, step are led down this path where we realize that she has been impregnated by aliens. There's a, a series of um, attempted hypnosis sessions uh, that are treated pretty spooky. They're always in these dark rooms with lots of candles. And Bosley from uh, Charlie's Angels, I can't remember the actor's name right David now. David Doyle. Yeah, David Doyle does the, yeah, is the friend of the of this couple. And uh, and he he does the uh, the, the hypnotic 
hypnosis sessions. And, um, and then there's also a doctor in there. So this, the combination between the doctor and the, the hypnotist, uh, there's this vibe of, I mean, it is treated deadly serious. There's no, there's no sort of wink to the audience that you get sometimes in like, um, uh, UFO related films of, of that era. Now there's no UFO ever seen in this movie, but there's certainly a lot of, uh, the sun certainly seems to be a stand in for UFOs uh, periodically throughout the film. They'll, they'll sort of, uh, mention UFOs or they'll imply flying ships. And then, um, uh, the lead character played by Barbara Eden will kind of look up into the sky and then there'll be sort of a lens flare and soft focus shot of the sun. Um, uh, the yeah. movie culminates where um, this is a spoiler alert for folks, but she gives birth to a you know child uh, early, well before it's due, and then um, she walks through the f- this kind of idyllic forest dressed, you know, like almost as a Greek goddess, and then uh, all these other women join her. The implication is that there's women all over the area that are arriving at the spot. Uh, the camera drifts up to the sun. There's kind of a poof of smoke, and all the women disappear. And, and yeah, that's the it's end. Very mythic. It's, yeah. it's, it's the way it ties in. And you know, one of the things that really struck me is that a lot of people don't realize because if they dropped in when I was really active on the blog, they would have no reason to believe otherwise. But um, I really wasn't into. Uh, you know, UFOs and all that stuff for a very long time. And it wasn't until um, a lot of it was, I'd spent a lot of time, you know, writing about uh, secret societies and, and, and ancient symbolism and mystery cults and things like that. And the whole idea of the sun, and you see the way that the sun is depicted in these friezes and, and images of, of Akhenaten, that it just seems like a, a UFO and you know, the whole idea of the sun disc and then the sun disc um, connects to the Mithraic liturgy, you know, and you, you know, Jung had seen this as this is sort of the, the foundation of his, his whole belief in the collective unconscious that the whole story of the sun disc and the pipe emanating from the center, you know, I and mean, if you just picture that, what you're picturing is, is a UFO. Um, but that's the thing that really kind of struck me. And it, and it wasn't until I was uh, Jeff Kripal, who a lot of my, uh, he's been on your show. At, at and as place. yours. Yeah. I thought he was great. Yeah, yeah, he's, by that book show. blew me away. Yeah. Yeah. And he's written a bunch of great books, but when he invited me out to this, uh, what was called the superpowers and the supernormal, um, a symposium out at Esalen at the Center of uh, Theory and Research. And uh, that's where I, I met Jacques Vallée and uh, Bertrand May Houston. I'm not going to pronounce that correctly. But, you know, I'd spent a lot of time talking to them. And I, I really wasn't, you know, I really wasn't processing this stuff. And it wasn't really until that experience that it kind of sort of fell all together. And the interesting thing about that film is, like you said, when they, they use the sun as, as this visual stand-in for, uh, for a UFO, for a flying saucer. And, and it's a, it's a, you know, a low-budget treatment. It's a very simple way to get, you know, get a kind of moody idea across. So, so I'm quite sure. Yeah, but they tell a story. I mean, that's the whole thing about that is that 
they, when they you don't have a crutch, you've got to put it down on the page. You know, when you you can't dazzle people with pyrotechnics. It's got to be on the page. It's got to be in the dialogue. And I, I thought that was, you know, a very, very effective way because let's say several thousand years ago when people are being confronted with, uh, you know, uh, these bright lights in the, in the night sky and, you know, we've certainly heard enough stories from contemporary reports where, you know, the sky is, is lit up is lit up like daytime, you know. So it seems to me that why would they not have this association with the sun? And and it got to the point when I was really digging into all this sun worship and all this, all the history of, of these solar uh, cults and things like that, that I just wasn't compelled by the idea of this just being about the sun in the sky. I mean, yes, I mean, we do know that the sun is the author of all life, and we're all made of sun stuff. I mean, all those things. But it's just not compelling. It's just something that, that people were going to take for granted. And and also, in, in these areas, you know, Greece, uh, Rome, Egypt, all, you know, these just north of the equator, these very hot <laughs> Mediterranean areas. I mean, you know, sun worship... Is, is really, um, in, in the Greco-Roman pantheons, I mean, uh, Helios, later Apollo, is, is really a minor figure. I mean, Helios isn't even a god, he's a titan. And it's not until you have this whole contamination, so to speak, from Egypt, uh, that the sun really becomes a, a central figure in, in these religions. And when you start to read all that, literature and all that lore from, from ancient Egypt. I mean, it's just, it's so hard not to look at it, you know, in, in that sort of ancient aliens uh, <laughs> context. Uh, it's just, it's, you know, whether you choose to, to believe it or not, I mean, the, 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 the descriptions are just too, too consistent. Um, and that's the interesting thing about that film that I thought was just so... Canny and just so subtle that it does become, you know, it reminds me of, you know, the the, the brides of Apollo or the brides of of Zeus, you know, bringing their their hybrid children, you know, Hercules and, and all these other characters, you know, into this grove to be blessed by the, you know, by the gods and the whole way that is presented just shows that who, who's ever doing this is either consciously or unconsciously has this deeper understanding of, of these connections. And, and today, you know, when you look at all these alien films being made today, and I was thinking about this the other day, I was thinking, you know, why are we seeing you know, Battleship and Transformers and all these movies, Battle Los Angeles? And really what these films are about when you look at them is that they want to sell, you know, the, the American war machine. They want to sell the power of the American war machine. But, you know, you can't, um, with the, the international market, you can't have the old enemies of the Cold War and whatnot. So you've got to, you know, create new enemies. 
and you know these these alien invasion films are great because you can get all that militarism and all that jingoism whipped up, but you're not going to worry about alienating people and. <laughs> you know, overseas territories. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, it, I mean, even just the hand-in-hand, hand, you know, the, the Navy offering up their their battleships for the production of, of the, you know, movie Battleship. Oh, they're very, they're very deeply involved in this stuff. And it's just, you know, these films, when you really look at them, it's just a way to show off all this hardware. And, and, and they're basically recruitment films without the... Without the commies. Yeah, you know, without the... The, the problematic um, political conflicts that would arise, you know, from from the old Hollywood you know, military recruitment films like the Green Berets or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, one of the things that struck me this is now, you know, I, I said that I wrote this essay and then I had to like tack on so much more. This 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 movie, The Stranger Within, really hit home for me. And, um, you know, partially just because I've been doing all this, uh, you know, UFO abduction research and all the the threads that tied back to, you know, the story that was being told um, seemed to be predictive of what would later then show up in the, um, you know, the UFO abduction literature. Um, and, and this traces back to 1953. The, the short story is actually very, very close to the, um, the premise of the film. Yes. Uh, very, there's a few minor changes, and I noted some of those. But, you know, that little short story is only about, like, 11 pages long. It's short. Um, you know, tells the same story. Uh, it, but there was just so much that felt, like, personal to me. I'll just give one example. The, the, the mother, you know, the pregnant mother, um, Barbara Eden, like, leaves the house in a huff and gets into her bright yellow Chevy Nova. And that was the exact car that my mom drove at that exact same time in 1974. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I I had written on the blog um, pertaining to my mother had had these recurring nightmares when she was pregnant with me. That, and, and I didn't hear this story until much later. I heard the story when um, my, my first son was born. But she had told me that she would put me, put my sister down for naps when she was um pregnant with me and then she would have this recurring nightmare that there was a what she called a witch trying to get in the back door um and this is the same spot that i had this like super real vivid hallucination of of, of a leprechaun that had you know very strange ufo ufological undertones to it but so but what i talked about later on the blog and I had no idea about is that at that same time um, there was this huge UFO flap in my area so when when you discovered this movie and you started writing about this it, it just sort of put all put all these uh, threads together and I'm not saying that there's some uh, you know deeper meaning as as far as <laughs> being a hybrid or anything like that, but it, it just, the synchronicity of it struck me because um, this really tied into this whole situation with my mother, you know, before I was born. Uh, and then that this was in the midst, in the, in the spring of, of 1966, was this huge UFO flap in eastern Massachusetts, you know, in my area. I mean, it was just astonishing. We're talking, you know, multiple witnesses, police witnesses, all these sorts of things. It was uh, 
pretty astonishing period and, and, went, and dozens, dozens of, of major sightings. And the thing that really struck me when I watched um, that Stranger Within, when I saw the, uh, the film itself, is that you know, the first signifier we see is, is a calendar that reads January 10th uh, that, that Barbara Eden is standing in, in, in back of. And, and that's my mother's birthday. So I was really kind of struck by that. And oh, here, let me just, just uh, my mother's birthday is January 14th, for whatever that might mean, but keep going. Well, that's interesting, too, um, because, the, you know, astrologically, that might as well be the uh, same day, yeah. right? But, um, yeah, so that, that really kind of struck me, uh, you know, in a synchronicity sense. And it, it just, it's an interesting thing because these kind of sinks themselves, um, have a cumulative effect. And, and I think it's, it's less about a literal kind of message than about a, a cumulative message. And, and that's the thing that really struck. And there are other things in that film as well. And that, you know, the, that movie with, you know, the Barbara Eden movie. But um, the interesting thing too, is that she's a, an artist. The Barbara Eden character is an artist. My mother was uh, doing a lot of artwork at the time as well. So, again, I mean, that was a, a very interesting and resonant film for me that I had never heard of. I mean, it was just amazing. Oh, oh no one had ever heard of. I mean, that, that, what, the, uh, the, all of those, uh, you know, made-for-TV movie, you know, Movie of the Week series, those just disappeared. All, you know, from, yeah, ABC from the, was doing a lot of these things. I mean, you once know, a week. Uh, oh, yeah. Some of yeah, them are, some of them are great. You know, we'll talk about Night Slaves. They did Night Slaves, but they also did this um, really bizarre movie that was shot on video uh, called Alien Lover. Oh, that and was in the early 80s or the, the late no, 70s? This is the early 70s. This is the same time period. Okay, I and watched that one online and that's the, that, had, that has the, whatever, Jane away from, from one of the Star Trek series. That's actually, this was her, her, her television debut. That was her first role. That movie was, was very, very, I mean, it felt like a stage play. It was very claustrophobic. They never left the house. I know. And the thing that's fascinating about it is that it's this whole idea that I wrote about, you know, at length on the blog about, you know, the, the signal, the, the transmissions, you know, that, that, that contact through electronics. Um, you know, I did a post, I believe at the end of last year called, I'll show you how to bring me to your world. That's could be straight out of that movie. I mean, that's a fascinating movie. Um, and I just this is interesting because I've been on a I've been on totally on a on a roll with these things. I watched that and a, a, um, yeah, that one was super eerie and um, and really. Uh, I mean, as far as the story, it was really well crafted. And I will also have to say there was a there's this I, I don't remember seeing it at the time, but there is this sense of almost like vis, visceral nostalgia. You know, I'm of the perfect age to have to have been in front of the TV for more hours than I care to. To, to admit, um, at you know, in the mid '70s, you know, watching stuff like this, so the actual production value, the 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 way it felt, um, even just watching it, I just remember I watched a lot of television on this crappy black and white TV down in the basement, um, and you know what I what I got was, um, you know, like I was always seeing these things almost through the fog of lousy technology. So in a way, I, I don't really have any problems watching it on YouTube. I mean, that same fog is there, and I and I almost feel that that like uh, you know adds to the nostalgic quality. 
Yeah, but, you know, it's interesting because there was a lot of garbage. I mean, let's get... We shouldn't get too nostalgic. <laughs> well, no, yeah, no, nostalgic in the sense that, like, it's, I'm, like, whatever, it, it, you know, it, it reminded me of my youth. Let me put it that way. Well, it's interesting, too, because the 70s got worse as they, you know, they got on. Um, there was much better writing. I mean, when you think of all the classic 70s shows, well, mostly of the first half of the decade. I mean, things like Mary Tyler Moore and All in the Family and, you know, MASH before it got really terrible. Uh, Carol Burnett show. Sure. Uh, oh, yeah. Those it, things hold up beautifully. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating to me that you know snuck in the interesting thing that, that most people don't realize now because everything is sort of micro uh, marketed. But at that point in time, I mean, shows were getting you know, you'd have forty million people just watching a lousy sitcom that nobody remembers because you had no choice. <laughs> yeah, you had three networks. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a very limited um, slate of options for, for viewing. So you end up watching a lot of stuff that you just despise because you had no choice. But at the same point in time, you know, a film like Stranger Within or Alien Lover, I mean, Alien Lover is a little bit different because it was a midnight uh, a mystery movie, um, which were not actually movies, but, but video sort of theatrical video presentations. Um, but you know, millions of people were watching this stuff. I mean, that's so amazing to me. And and, and then uh, some of the stuff was pretty, I mean, like, I mean, there was a, I mean, there are so many, uh, I mean, some of them are a little bit exploitative, you know, of, you know, I can't remember what the, of those ABC movie of the weeks, a lot of them had to do with Satan cults and, and, uh, you know, people being trapped on sort of twilight zone, uh, you know, islands and things like that. Yeah. Um, that's something, you know, that I've been writing about, um, on the solar satellite. And, you know, I kind of almost looked askance at some of the stuff. Um, I talked about how the, the exorcist, William Peter Blatty, who was the author of the original novel, who was just spooked up to his eyeballs. I mean, this guy was, um, the head of the, uh, the United States Air Force Psychological Warfare Unit. <laughs> really? Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, Peter Blatty's yeah, still alive. Yeah. He's still and around. Also, he also worked for the, uh, the USIA, which is the U.S. Uh, Information Agency. Uh, you know, up and down the line, this guy was just... just obvious, obvious spook. I mean, it's not even a question of speculation. I mean, it's right there in his resume. And I really do think a lot of this sort of satanic, and this is something I wrote about recently on the Soul Satellite, that I think a lot of this was part of this whole program to, you know, get the old fire and brimstone religion back, you know, as, as part of the, the Cold War. Um, Nixon definitely had a, an anti-county cultural agenda. And I, I think you know he was he was in deep with people like Billy Graham, and Billy Graham was um, basically a creation of uh, John Foster Dulles. Um, this was all a program, and I, I think Hollywood was part of this. I, I think that a lot of these films that created the sort of sense of paranoia that that really had pretty negative ramifications when you had a lot of these satanic panics, uh, you know, particularly later on in the, uh, the the early and mid eighties. You know, the whole hysteria over Procter and Gamble, which was, um, you know, a complete hoax. You know, that they're, 
CEO was alleged to have gone on Donahue and pledged his allegiance to Satan and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, I, I think there's a, a bit of an agenda at work here, particularly when you start to see some of the people involved, you know, what people like William Peter Blatty. And also the way that, um, you know, what makes that movie great, uh, The Exorcist, you know, quote unquote great, is, you know, William Friedkin. I, I agree. I think that movie holds yeah, that, that he, the highlight. The, the 1970s had was basically the, the, the pinnacle of American filmmaking, in my opinion. Uh, there were so many, you know, powerful and I'm going to say like adult, you know, like like made for grownups, made for thinking people. Um, there's an artistry that emerged in the 70s in America that, that uh, we may never see again. But look how he was kicked to the curb after he made that movie. You know, um, that, you know, Hollywood really dispensed with him. And, and that was a huge hit, too. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's really kind of disturbing in some ways. So you, it makes you wonder what, uh, what else kind of agenda was at work then. Uh, the cocaine, I think, may have had a lot to do with what little of it, the crumbling of the 70s uh, you know, genius, too. So. Well, I, I think, you know, I mean, that was everybody in that town. But yeah. there are certain people who seem to have been picked to, to win and certain people who were picked to lose. And, and you really have to wonder, you know, as far as what the messages of their films were and, and how that fit into the overarching political agenda. You know, particularly as Hollywood, all the old studios were all getting bought up by, you know, Paramount is a great example. I mean, Paramount was, was bought up by Gulf and Western. You know, this enormous company with trillions of dollars of assets. <laughs> you know, it was later it was later broken up, but at the time, um, you know, mining and and all these things that had nothing to do with show business. Uh, I think I think they owned Coca Cola and it's this enormous company. Yeah. And uh, you know, the great thing about the guy who ran Gulf and West and Samuel Blue Dorn is that he let um, Robert Evans make movies. You know, he wasn't like these guys today who want to micromanage. You know, even the creative process. You know, this guy was smart enough to realize that you've got to let the creative people create. And that's something that just completely evaporated. Uh, it began evaporating throughout the later 70s and is is completely vanished now. I mean, even in quote-unquote independent film, it's gone. Yeah, yeah, they all try to look like Hollywood films. And, you know, you've got this, you know, that major Hollywood films with, with big stars are, are fighting for the same... Um, space that the independent films were, were once sort of had to themselves. So, you know, the market's oversaturated. Yeah. But all this, you know, this whole idea that, that I'm, I'm really fixated on that, you know, the creativity be, can become, you know, it's tempting to use you know, terms like shamanic. But I also think there's, there's another aspect to this, and maybe an aspect that's maybe less politically correct to talk about, and something that I've, that I've talked about a lot and will continue to talk about, that, you know, that there are other signals, that there are other uh, messages out there uh, that are being picked up upon. And before, there were all these gatekeepers in the creative process. When, when there was a, a shorter distance from creativity the creator to the audience. Um, you know, you did have things like these these movies that we're talking about, 
uh, that that have very powerful and strange resonances that I think are going to take maybe a little more time. You know, people like you and I just we latch right onto this because we're we're right there. But um, you know, maybe a lot of other people don't. But you know, really getting back to um, what I wanted to, to sort of reiterate about about the stranger within is you know, that scene you talk about that it just seems like something out of Eleusis or something, you know, these uh, Vestal Virgins and these demigod children or whatever. I mean, it really was, I really lost interest in ufology and, and ancient astronauts and all that stuff. I would say probably like 97, 98. So there was like a 10-year period that I just was not processing that kind of stuff at all. I just had no interest in it. I just was not reading about it. Um, nothing. I just wasn't interested. I didn't, I, I, I had moved on to other things because it just, I had run into the same problem that everybody who goes down that whole nuts and bolts ufology kind of road runs into is that there's just no way to go with it. And it wasn't until, you know, I'd really been so immersed in like the mystery religions and things like that that all of a sudden, like, the pieces all sort of came together. And I, I think that that final scene and just the way that whole film is is treated, it, it could be a story of, of an, you know, it is basically, it's a story of an immaculate conception, basically, is what it is. Yeah, it's a story of, you know, um, uh, Isis and, and Horus. No, it's, I don't know about that because Isis was a goddess, but it's, you know, it's 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 Mary and Jesus, you know. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of that in there, for sure, yeah. Or any number of figures from Greek uh, Greek mythology, you know, same kind of figures. The, the, the mortal woman who will meet the god, you know, often in disguise and, uh, you know, bears a hybrid child. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, th- that was... Oh my gosh! And like the, I mean the 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 how that parallels. I, I just I had a conversation with Peter Robbins just a couple of days ago talking about movies. Uh, he's he was uh, he's an author in his own right of writing about the UFO phenomena. But he was the assistant to Bud Hopkins for you know well over I almost want to say twenty years, um, and you know, and Bud Hopkins was the person who stumbled on or or first wrote about the hybrid alien child issue and and i i asked peter you know like i'm doing this anecdotally like i I don't pretend to be a researcher that keeps you know accurate documentation i don't make spreadsheets about this but uh it seems that and i've talked to a lot of people who acclaim this you know the contact experience and when you talk to women and i'm just going to round the number up to 100%, it seems that all of the women I have talked to who claim this phenomena will will have elements of the hybrid child meme like in, in their own direct experience, whether that's odd pregnancies or actual out-and-out memories of meeting a, a, um, uh, a hybrid child. Oftentimes in real life, um, they'll, they'll somehow, they'll be like almost an arranged meeting. Um, and, and but the number in, in Peter did not dispute this. I confronted him with this. I said, "Is the number a hundred percent?" And he, you know, he didn't. Re- you know, he 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 seemed to agree with that number. Well, there are all these things that when you you know, unfortunately, we're in the 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 era of of you know 
ancient aliens and, and Giorgio Tsoukalos as, as internet meme, you know, where it just becomes more difficult to, to seriously have discussions about these kind of things. But, you know, when you look at the this modern situation and then you look at, you know, the the ancient parallels, it's just another thing that I was just so struck. Have you ever read about the wild hunt? No. The whole, the whole Nordic idea. I mean, basically, this whole idea sounds like, um, you know, like a, a flying saucer war. <laughs> you know? When you read about it, it's just, it's this uh, Nordic myth and, you know, it's this battle in the sky of the gods and, you know, it takes place in the clouds and these chariots and shields and all these sort of things. And you just, you just, you're like, where did this come from? You know, what, what's the inspiration for this? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they just say, like, where did this come from? Where did this, where did the stranger within come from? What's the inspiration for that? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, is this stuff just out there and it just has to well up in the human consciousness? I think so. You see, this is, a, this is, you know, really what I'm getting back to is that, you know, when I sort of approach this stuff, you know, from having read all this Jung and stuff for so many years. Well, you know, where did Jung stuff come from? Well, first of all, Jung spent several years, you know, the last several years of his life, you know, obsessing on flying saucers and, you know, even wrote a book about it. But, you know, the beginning of this whole career as as a guru, well, you know, so to speak, starts with the Mithraic liturgy. Well, go back and read the Mithraic liturgy. It's the story of a UFO abduction, you know, basically. As it's basically as, as is the story of Jesus. It's basically a UFO abduction, a classic UFO abduction, with with some accoutrement <laughs> added on for decoration. But it reminded me of that story, and, and this, I wrote about this on the blog of, of that woman in Australia about the same time that Stranger Within was released, who um, had contacted, I guess, MUFON people or whatever the organization is down in Australia and said that she was experiencing abduction phenomena. And, you know, when she described what she'd been experiencing, and it sounded, you know, like something was being transmitted into her brain because this, all this was going on while these guys are sitting, you know, in the same car with her. It sounded like it was straight out of the um, Mithraic liturgy. So, is, this, is this the Kitty Cahill story? Um, it might be. I, I mean, I can look it up if you'd like. But yeah, okay. um, there, there's a there's a very interesting event that took place in Australia around that time. I think it would have been maybe maybe would have been the early '80s, uh, where a woman named Kitty Cahill was driving, I think, with her husband, uh, and then had an abduction experience on uh, at like a crossroads. And she's walked out into a field. Uh, now, this woman was named Maureen Putty. Okay. Okay. And this was 72, so this is a little bit before. Okay. But and the Kitty Cahill story, let me just, that was very interesting because she was, uh, you know, then sort of beamed up into this UFO, had a bunch of, ex- you know, experiences, came back. But there was a separate car, like, you know, across the field on a separate road that witnessed the entire thing. So she came and told this incredible story, you know, being lifted up into a ship and walking as if she was a zombie. And, and, and then it was completely corroborated by 
you know, a, an independent witness that that had no connection at all with her. So, you know, that story. I, I is, think you mean Kelly Cahill. Can, excuse me, Kelly Cahill. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, again, there's just so much of it, and like I said, I mean, ten years prior to to blogging about this stuff on the secret sun, I had just given up on all this, on ufology and all this kind of stuff. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't find how it was relevant, you know, to the rest of my life. And it wasn't until I began plugging all this other stuff into it that I realized that it was all part of this continuum. And to me, this is where I, I came to develop this whole idea, you know, of the elusive companions, that this is not an extraterrestrial phenomenon, that this is something that's just a permanent part of our environment and, and always has been and probably always will be. And, you know, I, I feel that, you know, to use computer technology, I, I feel like a better metaphor that this is a software issue rather than a hardware issue. And I, I think that, you know, that same metaphor is, could be exoteric and esoteric religion, you know, that hardware, software. And I think that with people who are into disclosure and all these sort of things, um, that it's, it's, it's an apocalyptic, you know, in, in the truest sense, kind of philosophy as opposed to more of a software based, you know, people who want the, the, the government to spill the beans and, and for UFOs to land on the white house lawn and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, my understanding, I, I just couldn't, you know, when I was thinking that way about this whole phenomenon, I just couldn't get anywhere with it. It, it just w wasn't going anywhere. And, it just didn't seem that there were there was any interaction, and it wasn't until I started realizing how synchronicity and these other ideas were all part of this that it made sense to me. So it's it's a, it's a very interesting middle middle ground to be, you know. Maybe it's a very small island in the whole skeptic and believer dichotomy. But like like I said, I mean, it's something that I came to for after several years of trying to wrap my head around all this other stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and just realizing it's 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 all part of this this giant reality. Yeah, and I mean, the stuff. The only way I can just this stuff wants to emerge. That's you know, it just needs to you know bubble up to the surface somehow. Um, well, I'll give you another great metaphor. I mean, we were having this problem with the water pressure in my house. That the, the water pressure seems to be too strong for for you know the, our house, the, you know, coming in from the street. So we keep repairing these valves on these different plumbing fixtures, and as soon as we do, another one starts to leak. <laughs> you know, because the problem isn't in, isn't the 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 fixtures, it's the, this problem that there's just too much water pressure coming into the house. And I, I think that that's sort of what's going on, you know, what we're discussing here. 
is those little <laughs> drips that are that are seeping into into the collective consciousness, um, you know, through unbeknownst, probably unbeknownst to the filmmakers, uh, you know, but they're they're showing up in this in our realm, and, and it's almost creating a new mythology. These these little drips. Yeah, because these. You know, it's the same thing, you know, the same, to extend the metaphor, this whole underground, <laughs> you know, the pipes are underground and, you know, it's being fed into this larger system, right? This this larger reservoir. Um, and I, I think the, the better artists, the better storytellers are those who, who are more tuned in, you know, they're more tapped into that main system, <laughs> you know, the main, the water main, so, so to speak. And even without realizing it, even without them recognizing what they are doing, um, you know, because like I said, storytelling can become this very trance-like, shamanic process. They don't realize what they're saying, what they're doing. And maybe it won't be until several years later that people will go back and say, well, this is kind of like this. I mean, you know, my favorite example of this is um, the first Star Trek pilot, The Cage, and, and how it seems to tell the story of the uh, the Villas Boas abduction. I mean, that could have been intentional. Um, this could have been something that Roddenberry had heard, thrown, heard about through his uh, intelligence connections. You know, whatever. But that you know the entire story you know with with Vina and Captain Pike I mean it's 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 very much this other story being told in this metaphor and you see this over and over again and again and then you see these other symbols and signifiers start to pop up in this because it's all part it's all being fed from the same well it's just it's coming through different outlets yeah yeah, I agree. But, you know, it's, it's something that people don't recognize the power of because they're looking for that Independence Day kind of splash. You know, um, we've been so conditioned because we've been raised in a, um, you know, in a very exoteric oriented culture that we don't recognize the power, you know, this, this more insidious kind of power this this you know this power that just is constant and, and is constantly like this background hum and, and will will pop up in interesting ways but we, we we don't know how to recognize that we can't be, you know and I think Hollywood in a lot of ways ironically is a big is a big part of this because we see all these stories told you know, through these metaphors um, in, in, in Hollywood that, that it just repackages entertainment. And it's just huge. It's like a funhouse mirror. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you, you stand and look at yourself. The media, I think, is that funhouse mirror that everything is distorted and exaggerated and, and just becomes unrecognizable. Exactly, and especially when... But people they become... They internalize that image. You know, they internalize that funhouse mirror image of, of themselves and of the world they live in, that when things seep through, even when you have 
all kinds of just really fascinating evidence. People cannot process it because it doesn't fit with their reality model. You know? I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that we recently saw the news story that the NASA had said that they were working on a, on a warp drive. So all of a sudden, you know, UFO skeptics have always been based on, you know, people who are working in the, the whole ETH uh, model, which I don't necessarily subscribe to myself. But, you know, it's always, well, this can happen because there's just no way of getting there. You know, and that might be true. But when, you know, NASA says that they themselves are working on a way of getting there, all of a sudden that argument can't be made anymore. You know, Timothy Leary's always said that, you know, once we, we can only understand a mystery once we have an external model for it. You know, and he was talking about this in, in relationship to the, the human body. And that we didn't really understand the brain until we had the microprocessor and the computer. So maybe now, you know, we won't have the same kind of knee-jerk reaction and just this, this false dichotomy where everything is sort of fed into these artificial camps because now we have an external model. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Hey, um, let's jump to another movie. Okay. Uh, the Crimson Cult. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a movie. Uh, it very much like a Hammer film, a Hammer horror film. Um, I, I don't Hammer have... film in all but name. Pardon? It's a Hammer film in all but name. Oh I mean. gosh, yeah. It has the buxom girls. It has Christopher Lee. Yeah, it's got the weird, you know, haunted castle. Yeah, it, it, it's Karloff. I don't know if Karloff was in any Hammer film, so that might be one of the main differences. And that was Karloff's final screen appearance. I really, I just, I read after I saw the film. So I think it was his final, maybe the final filming shot, but he was appearing in movies that he had shot before that, up until the early 70s. Oh, because they just had pieces of other films laying around, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Something yeah. to that effect, yeah. But he's great in that movie. Yeah, he was wonderful. Yeah, just just, just great. And, and, uh, and uh, but anyway, so that movie, as far as, uh, you know, it's a oh, you know, classic you know, horror it's film. It's kind of a Wicker Man. I mean, to, to, to really just sum it up, you know, the elevated pitch would be, it's kind of like a, a Wicker Man prototype, I would say. Yes, but at the same time, it um, uh, it has so many direct analogies, which you pointed out, and then I kind of went crazy making these bulleted points uh, of it, it, the analogy to uh, the UFO abduction lore. Yeah, really does. It's, it's, it's kind of stunning. And, you know, you, you know, itemize those, you know, in bullet point format, which I just thought was uh, terrific. And I had actually added that as a, as an update to the uh, post on the solar satellite. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that movie, um, you know, it, I, I was, so now who's, who wrote the script? Henry, Henry uh, Lincoln. And the, from, uh, and he wrote uh, with, uh, what did he write? He wrote the thing on the grail. Yeah. The Holy blood, Holy grail with uh, Badgen and Lee. So and this guy, I, I had no idea until I started researching this story, but he he was an actor, and then he also was a, a film writer, and he wrote uh, three different uh, Doctor Who serials, and he wrote a bunch of other stuff. So and this guy has a really fascinating uh, lineage here. And and then the Holy Blood, Holy Grail 
is the basis. I mean, like, you know, I think there was actually even some legal issues where they tried to sue Dan Brown for stealing all that information in the creation of the Da Vinci Code. So that's correct. So all of this stuff. So this nutty little, you know, uh, British horror film, uh, which is nutty is the wrong way to put it. You know, it's delightful. It was just like, it's so, it was a delicious little film. Um, you know, was the, the the puzzle pieces all connect right to the single most popular book in the history of, of the publishing industry. Yeah. Or modern publishing industry. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I, people can go watch this on YouTube and it's also on, um, I think I watched it on Netflix. Yeah, but it's a fantastic uh, little artifact because it's got all the great calling cards of Hammer. You know, it's got the the rock and roll party scenes and then the the weird town with the strange rituals. But then there are also these weird, you know, these weird incongruous (laughs) elements. You know, the fact that after he has his abduction experience, uh, he's... You know, he's pursued by a man in black. And and we're talking a classic man in black in that film. And yeah, he, he doesn't even speak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's just incredible. And he's got the pasty skin and the black clothes and the sunglasses. And, and he's and he's like the whatever. Yeah, the, and yeah. The, it, he's direct connected directly to uh, 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 Boris Karloff and all the, you know, the associated weirdness that that, that character brings with him. Yeah. And then the fact that there's the the witch figure is blue skin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Blue green skin, sort of aqua skin. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't want to, you know, a lot of the more interesting kind of themes here, I would have to risk spoilage and I, I don't want to get too, too deeply into that because there are some interesting, important details about the story that I would have to, um, you know, kind of spoil you about. But let me just say that there's also, you know, things that I've written about on the blog as far as, you know, know, walking phenomena and also this whole idea of abduction being um, a virtual reality. Uh, And that's really the best way to put it. And, and, you know, that's another interesting thing, you know, when I, I think of all the different strands of my life and how they all sort of tie in, and, you know, having this unconscious recognition, but, you know, um, I've written about this whole virtual reality aspect of, of abduction phenomena. Uh, and, and one of the things that was really fascinating to me um, is that people would have these experiences with all these sort of incongruities, you know, as far as technology and, and you know, like the spaceships would have dials and and wheels and things like that, but, um, knobs, but just this whole idea that there was this interesting, um, rash of abduction reports from Europe in the late fifties that all started, um, where basically people were, had a sighting and had a a close encounter of the, (laughs) the third kind. And, after this experience showed signs of radiation sickness. Uh, oh yeah. That's, that is, that is less common now, but it was very common, at, you know, at a certain sort of 
And these are all these daylight abductions. You know, there are the nighttime abductions where it just seems that there's a maybe a different kind of methodology at work here. But again, I mean, this ties right back to you know this whole Magonia um, with Jacques Vallée and talking about. Uh, and and again, you see this in that Star Trek. You know, where it was it, it's the same exact situation. The, the daylight close encounter with the alien. The the, the big bald-headed alien and then that wand you know that he's he's struck with uh that that knocks him unconscious and then is taken into this this nether world um oh yeah and and the, with with these uh sort of holodeck virtual reality experiences that he's uh that he actually you know by the end of the cage you know he chooses to live in that you know that that hallucination yeah exactly um, because he's, his body is so damaged um, from radiation. But again, this is a software thing. Um, I'm just so fascinated by all this because all these memes, uh, and this ties back that I had a, I was a big cyberpunk uh, obsessive, and this was another one of my sort of UFO. Uh, fallow periods because I remember I was really into UFOs up until the X-Files premiered. And even like, I was sort of almost on the tail end of my UFO uh, obsession at that point in time because I was really getting into cyberpunk. Well, what's cyberpunk all about? It's all about like virtual reality and stuff like that. But, you know, I didn't realize that I was just sort of pursuing the same line of inquiry just from a different standpoint, you know, a different vantage point. Uh, and that's one of the things that was great about The Secret Sun is that I, I was really able to put all these pieces together because at the start of this process, they were all just things that I thought were cool. And by the end of the process, I realized that they were all very deeply connected, mm-hmm. you know, in, in very profound ways. And, and this is something we talked about with the, you know, the elusive companion theory. But, you know, really this whole idea of, you know, how synchronicity sort of ties this all together, that synchronicity is the bleed over, you know, the bleed over that cannot be explained, you know, that cannot be explained through conventional reality models. Yeah, yeah. But to me is... You know, and this is the interesting thing is that, you know, the connection of synchronicity and ufology is maybe, you know, it's certainly not the dominant explanation, but it's always been there. I I, I was watching um, uh, Rod Serling. You know, Rod Serling, a lot of people don't realize that Rod Serling made three different UFO. documentaries in the 70s yeah and they were all and, good as i recall they were yeah, all like they all, all seem really relevant now they're all excellent certainly better than anything that's made today um but one of them was ufos that has begun and jacques Vallée's in it and it ta- he one of the people interviewed is this guy from san francisco had the sighting and sent the, the, you know an, an excellent daylight sighting and sent f- film of it to the air force and it came back you know heavily doctored you know, and we've heard this story several different times. But he said after this whole experience with the sighting that he just started experiencing just incredible synchronicity. Now, see, this is the thing that, this is where 
I start to drift away from the ETH because the ETH model, which is sort of based in 1920 science fiction, when you really get down to it, uh, it's it's almost a kind of nostalgic model of this this, this situation. But it, how could it possibly allow for, for for this bleed over? You know, for the for these what for lack of a better term, psychic bleed over. It can't. Well, you know, I will. I'll, I'll interject that the, you know, the folks that I've talked to and, and they, you know, people. Of, there's this one woman I interviewed her on the uh, a couple of years ago or over a year ago. Her name is she. Her pen name is Lucretia Hart. Um, her and I have talked a lot about you know where does the psychic bleed over come from, and she says that somehow or another the technology that they use to both um, talk and connect telepathically as well as, um, you know, this endless stories about, you know, the gray aliens just sort of walking through the wall and just entering the room or just appearing in the room. That process, that technological process opens a doorway between some other dimension. And once that doorway is open, there's like almost a rift or, or or a window between the two realities. And what happens is this other stuff comes rushing through and, you know, it, it, you know, you can't really, how to say, you can't really point to another reality. It's not like you can point up in the stars or, or you know, or internally into your own psyche that this other reality is, is connected to us in some way that we can't comprehend. So that connection, in essence, is a, is a doorway, and that is where the, uh, the psychic phenomena, the synchronicities, the odd poltergeist experiences come from. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's definitely something she's, she's beautiful at articulating, and, uh, and, I, and I'm just swept away when I listen to her because, uh, you know, it, it, there's a certain logic to it. Well, I'll tell you, two thoughts come to mind here. First of all, this takes us back to that old Arthur C. Clarke maxim that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Sure. Uh, you know, we, we just don't have models for this kind of technology, if, if indeed that's, you know, what we're talking about. You know, when you talk about things, I mean, I, I am of the opinion that everything can be explained, you know, through science and technology. We just need to let go of our models of, of, of which which, you know, certainly establishment science is unwilling to do, um, and more and more so than ever. I mean, you had a very interesting period where you had people like uh, Jack Safardi and, and all that, that whole crowd who were willing to take leaps that, you know, certainly are being quashed by the corporatization of science. Yeah, Dr. Bishop, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's definitely part of that uh, model of that. But also, I mean, you know, in my own life, and it really makes me wonder because, you know, when you say things like poltergeist, and <laughs> I feel like, you know, I've had a, I've had a, a sampler of, uh, <laughs> you know, all those things from column A and column B. <laughs> yeah, well, that's like one of the little things that, that uh, you know, like I, I've spoken to a lot of people, you know, you sit down with people at conferences or, or I make an effort to call people on the phone who have had the subduction experience. And one of the things you hear all the time is like they'll just offhandedly say like, oh, I grew up in a haunted house. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's funny because I've, I've never – and maybe I sort of – I have this whole – ECH as opposed to ETH, you know, because I've never had a sighting or whatever. But, you know, I have had these very strange encounters, you know, so maybe it's it's my own personal bias. 
and look what you're doing. You're like, you're, you're, you know, writing this, you know, the, the, the contents of both the secret sun and the, the, the solar satellite, you know, are, are attempting to wrestle with these, you know, grand ideas that, uh, you know, I don't know that, that, you know, no, that very few people, except, you know, the people who glom onto your, your blog, like me, um, are interested in. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, I was thinking about this today though. I, I think there is a, a larger, you know, a larger, maybe not audience, but a larger pool than, than we might think. But the problem is, is that the, in, you know, the, the conversation is dominated by certain voices and, you know, a lot of people who, who are more sensitive, so to speak, you know, are very easily put off by, you know, the techniques and the methods that are used to put them off. <laughs> you know, I mean, that are very deliberately used to sort of steer them away from uh, inquiring into different models of consensus reality. And that's why when you go to a UFO re- or when I go to a UFO conference, I make a big effort to like, you know, that that sort of you know intimidated looking person sitting off in the corner, um, as opposed to the big blowhard who's you know holding court somewhere. Uh, you know, like I, I'll always gravitate towards the, the the quiet introverted one in the corner because you know their story and, and if they you know. Uh, I kind of get, I have, a, I feel, I almost have the sixth sense I, that about this kind of stuff as far as who, like I gravitate to at these, at these scenes. And um, I'm always blown away by, you know, the stories that, that I, I hear, um, you know, not from the blowhards, but from the sort of, you know, the, 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 the meek characters. Well, that's the, you see, the, the interesting thing is that that's the old countercultural model is that, you know, when things used to work the way they should work, that you would have cultures that would become hidebound and unresponsive. And then the people who were outcasts and, and misfits would coalesce and create something else. Yeah, punk rock or... Yeah, yeah exactly. would sort of bubble underground for a while until it was co-opted by the mainstream. Um, and, you know, maybe ufology is overdue for that. Um, I, I personally, see, you know, feel that, you know, like I said, I mean, when I was investigating that dominant narrative, I just, I couldn't go anywhere with it. It just, there's nowhere to go. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're, Describing this phenomenon as, as, first of all, as alien, which I think is a you know terrible mistake because people just are, are xenophobic. You know, the human animal is, is essentially xenophobic, so it's going to re- reject something of that you know that's called alien, and I think that's a huge mistake that ancient aliens makes. And, and it's tough. I mean, that's that's there's all kinds of vocabulary words that I mean, you know, UFO abduction is a lousy word. You know, um, yeah, there, there, yeah, especially since the experience described by it is is very old and had different guises throughout history um and and this is you know this is where i just see this you know as an elusive reality and and see it almost the best model is almost a you know like a surveillance or reconnaissance model rather than 
you know, visitors from distant galaxies. Yeah, or Zookeeper is another good model. Yeah, that, that's that's another good one. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, the thing is, is that the corporatization of the external model is sort of being followed by the corporatization of the internal model. I mean, people are internalizing, you know, the, the, the dominant media models, you know, the, the way people, you know, we, people always sort of misuse the term predictive programming. Predictive programming is really describes when you use the media to change people's behavior and attitudes. Um, you know, a great, my favorite example is, um, you know, reality TV, quote unquote, that people end up imitating real housewives and, and trying to live the way they see these people living. They, you know, they want their houses to look like that and they want to dress like that. I mean, that's predictive programming. And I just think it's because that the, the media's reach into our lives is just so pervasive and, and, and getting more intrusive that for most people, unless there is some sort of massive breakdown or, or breakthrough, um, you know, that this is just going to continue to get worse. And, you know, there are so many different modes to fall into um, that are no less programmed but present themselves as, as being hip or hipster or, you know, rebellious or, you know, whatever, but are still systematized. And it's, you, you wonder, you know, how, how this is going to play out rather than, you know, through the robot, robotization of, of, of our culture. And I, I think, you know, the way to, to the first way to resist that is to resist the reality models that are that you're presented with, um, because they don't work. Uh, they, they, they they work because people pretend they work. You know, and it's it, I, personally, I, I you know, I, I have a physical condition that that medical science is rather impotent in the face of. So, I mean, already I have this deep skepticism of, about the the omnipotence, you know, of our science and, and, and the, the power of, of our conscious attention. And I, I think that that's something that, you know, cell phones and everything like that are just reinforcing. And this is why, you know, these kind of stories that, you just can't believe what they're channeling, for lack of a better term, were bleeding through. Is, is that when people could be quiet and people could think on their own and people spent time reading and things like that? I mean, this is something, you know, if, if you really want to make a difference, is to change that culture, is to change this Borg-like culture that, that we're evolving into. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I see that's 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 but you know, but when you the thing is that we we'll end up talking about things in the past, you know, all these things that we sort of listed that we wanted to talk about these TV movies and stuff. I mean, there there are no modern day equivalents to point at. 
because things have been too formalized. I mean, people are too, you know, they have expectations on how this stuff is supposed to work that I don't necessarily think that people had 40 years ago. Yeah, and I don't know what the, you know, will 30 years from now, will we look back at the movies now and be able to pick out, um, you know, little pieces and, and little gems uh, you know, from from our present day films, or will it be emerging in, from some completely other place? I don't know what you know what that is. I mean, that seems like there's a oh, I almost just want to say like almost like the um, the online community you know is might be producing something now or very soon um, that that can match the power of some of the the you know what was welling up in this this late '60s, early '70s, um, you know, made for TV and, and movie stuff. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because it's all very labor intensive. I mean, the technology has helped change distribution models, and you know, video is is a great advantage over film. I mean, film is extremely expensive to process and things like that. Oh, and just what we're doing right now, just this online conversation. You know, a decade ago, this would have required, uh, you know, a, a radio station. Yeah, exactly. So. But the thing is, when you're talking about film, it's you can't get around the amount of labor and the amount of coordination and logistics that need to go into it. That you need to get a bunch of artists, you know, to all get on the same page. You know, literally get on the same page. You know, that's why you know that the sort of stereotype of the screaming director really is based in reality because you just you know you're trying to herd cats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and... And heard egos, yeah. You know, the same applies. I mean, comic books, you know, the technology really hasn't changed in however many hundreds of years, right? But it's still, nothing has changed the amount of time and labor that you need to put into it. It's still extremely labor-intensive. You know, even if you... You can put it on, you know, the, the desktop of everyone in the, the entire world, you know, within seconds. It still takes a lot of time to produce, and and software and, and all that stuff has only changed that reality very slightly. Sure. So you know, again, I don't I don't want to sound you know overly pessimistic, but. Another th- another aspect of, of countercultures really comes from people sort of discovering obscurities from the past and, and, you know, mashing them all up into something new. So, you know, one thing that we can do is, is draw attention to these, these, these more interesting and, and, and richer narratives and get that, you know, that ball rolling, get that snowball rolling and, and hope that people will want their expectations to change, that people will want more interesting stories and, you know, more complex narratives being told, you know, change people's desire. And that, again, is a, is a countercultural process. But, you know, punk rock started with a bunch of misfits just coming together and collecting all the junk culture, you know, detritus that they thought was cool. And then it became something new. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll tell you something. I'm, I'm going on all sorts of side roads here, but 
Oh, here, let me rein you it's in a little bit. It's been a long bit. time since I've done this. So. Yeah, yeah, let me rein you in a little bit. Um, and no, and I, and I, lo- I mean, I have the side roads is where it's at. I mean, if you don't have the side roads, it's not a conversation, you know, then it's something else. But uh, so, uh, uh, so you were, I loved the little metaphor of hardware versus software uh, as, as far as where this is welling up. And now there's a movie called Hangar 18 that almost fits a little more into the hardware, you know, as, uh, aspect of it, where I think that uh, that movie, uh, this kind of, it almost, you know, like the I, w- I wanted to say the last movie of the '70s because it has that vibe to it. Um, it yeah, was made in 1980. Uh, well, it was released in 1980. Released in 1980, yeah. But yeah. It, it certainly has that '70s feel to it. Um, uh, you know, there, there's a there's so much in that movie, uh, and then it, and it and the implication is, or what it what it feels like is, you know, it wasn't by accident. Like this stuff didn't well up from the from the collective unconscious and then and then make its way into the script. Well, no, I mean, that's, see, well, <laughs> that's sort of the tail end. I mean, there were a lot of these sort of things, you know, that popped up before the Reagan era sort of put a clamp on it. And, and you know, another great example is Battlestar Galactica. You know, we well, all the sort of ancient astronaut theory entertainment, you know, was becoming very mainstream until the religious right came to town with, with Reagan. Um but strangely enough, I mean, there's this Mormon connection. There's a Mormon connection to that film because it was uh, released by Sun Classics, which was a Mormon-owned uh, studio. Um, and, of course, there's also Battlestar Galactica and, and Glenn Larson and, and that group. Um, a lot of people don't also realize that um, Leslie Stevens from The Outer Limits was also involved in the early development of Battlestar Galactica as well, the first season of the series. Um, yeah. The um, Hangar 18 is just a really strange little film um, in so many different ways. Uh, all these great 70s people like, you know, Gary Collins, um, Darren McGavin. Interesting a lot. I mean, most of these, most of the actors in it are, are TV actors. You, you do wonder if that was originally a TV movie that, that ended up getting released theatrically because it, it feels like a TV movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the cast seems like a television cast. Um, just the whole presentation, you know, is very much, you know, but, but it does sort of combine uh, UFOs and abductions and and ancient astronaut theory, um, but also cover-up. It seems like there's a Roswell um, kind of metaphor being spoken of there that, that... That took place just at the dawn. I mean, the, 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 the first Roswell book... Um, was released in February of 1980. So, um, you know, this movie, uh, you know, appears right on the, on the cusp of that, uh, that, that whole explosion into, you know, right into mainstream culture, because it was also, I think in 1980 that in search of did, I just watched it recently, the whole thing online did an excellent uh, episode on the, the actual Roswell event where they interviewed Jesse Marcel senior. And it's, it's really compelling. It's really moving. Yeah, I you know it's there's a couple interesting things here though because all right so let's take this whole idea of Hangar 18 which is you know very popular and was the, it popular? No, no, no. I'm just saying the whole idea you know in, in UFO sort of. Oh more, yes, yes, yes. That that, that there's aliens uh, stashed away and then, in you a, know this whole kind of Roswell idea as well, but also this idea that they fly a plane into the Air Force base to cover up the um, 
the discovery. And, and not only do they fly a plane, they, 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 you know, there's guys actually who control it with a joystick. It's a robotic plane filled yeah, with dynamite. Yeah, control. Yeah, and the thing that kind of reminded me of it, I wonder if uh, when Chris Carter did the first X-Files movie when they reenact sort of the Oklahoma City situation to cover up, you know, a similar kind of discovery. Um, but it's fascinating to me that, you know, there's this whole kind of 9-11 uh, foreshadowing 21 years earlier, you know, in the context of, of ufology and, and things like that. I mean, that's a very, very interesting film. You know, of course, there's this lame sort of teletype uh, ending added on that was obviously not the intent of the, uh, the people who made the film. It was obviously a studio thing because it probably didn't test well with the ending. And, and that's uh, something that's typical of a 70s film. Like, I mean, 70s films were notorious for having these less gloomy existential endings. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it all, it all ends very badly. And um, but that is a, a fascinating film um, because the way it plays out, it just seems like um, an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man but there's all these just very bizarre, subversive ideas being discussed throughout it. There's a scene where Darren McGavin, um, after the you know, so the, the the plot involves this, they recover this flying alien craft. It's not really a true disc shaped like a flying saucer, but they take it to Hangar 18 at, in in Texas. Is actually where it was. Uh, it was a NASA training site in Texas, um, and. They, uh, you know, there's a there's a cryptologist there, so he deciphers all the documents, you know, the codes that are there, and then he creates this document, and and uh, uh, you know, ever the hambone, you know, uh, uh, Darren McGavin, who's kind of a you know scenery chewer, uh, makes this, you know, pontificates. He drops, you know, they're in a conference room, and all the people involved in the you know the secret goings on in Hangar 18 are around the conference table, and he drops this document onto the table and lists. And it's it's very strange. It's like it's like it's he lists a bulleted set of points that that are kind of weird. You know, basically saying that you know we are the aliens, that the aliens came here and uh, interbred with us in ancient times, uh, changing the DNA, you know, in essence, the missing link, you know, was caused by the aliens and then, uh, say basically sets up the whole ancient aliens foundation right there. Well, this, I mean, this is all over everything, you know, I mean, so many franchises, big science fiction franchises, you know, all have this sort of at the core, whether it's acknowledged or not. I mean, Dr. Who, you know, it was all certainly those seventies uh, serials with 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 Tom Baker had all that stuff. You know, stuff like uh, the pyramids of Mars and everything like that. Um, and I, I you know that's something I blogged on before. I mean, but you know, just you name a major Hollywood science fiction franchise, and it's it's you know got ancient a- astronauts hiding somewhere. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. And you really wonder, um, you know, if there is some sort of conditioning process going on here that, uh, and, and this is the thing that fascinates me is that all this sort of stopped dead in its tracks when Reagan was elected and then, uh, began to sort of reemerge, uh, with things like the X-Files and Stargate during the Clinton years and then went away again during the Bush period, and then 
really came back strong during the Obama period. And, you know, and who are the people who are trying to debunk this? Um, that movie, uh, Ancient Aliens Debunked, I mean, who is it made by? It's made by two right-wing extremist evangelical fundamentalists, uh, Chris White, who's just a maniac, and Michael S. Heiser. Um, so it's the same same pattern reemerging over and over again. You know that that there seems to be this struggle behind the scenes uh, about this narrative, and that the um, you know the right wing evangelical crowd, most recently people like Chris White and Michael S. Heiser, who works for Jerry Falwell's organization. I mean that's how right wing he is. You know, an organization that. You know that doesn't even allow um, Democratic Party uh, clubs on campus. You know that's that's how far to the right Michael Heiser is. And what's his what's what's his relation to all this? Well, he's the guy. You know, Chris White is an idiot, and he has nothing to do with. He just basically made a film that aired all of Heiser's rejoinders. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is the ancient yeah, aliens the, 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 Okay. The, the sick irony is that these guys will, you know, they're both hardcore creationists. How can two creationists, you know, resort to um, orthodox science to, you know, dispute? I mean, listen, there's all sorts of criticisms you can make about ancient aliens. I, I, I have plenty myself. I mean, I have all sorts of problems with that series. And I haven't been able to watch it. Just that it's a type of yeah, documentary I mean, filmmaking that makes so my skin so many crawl. problems. I mean, just, you know, I mean, up and down the line. I mean, I, I have plenty of criticisms of that series myself. I'm not going to defend it. But, um, you know, these guys cannot go and criticize you know, the theories being put forth by resorting to orthodox science when their bedrock belief system is based on creationism, you know, a young earth, 6,000 year, six day creation. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, you, you know, it's like, it's like if I was trying to, uh, end an argument by resorting to Santa Claus lives at the North Pole. To, to Santa Claus or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, you can't do it. I mean, it's just the the, the um, contradictions are just grotesque. But so, anyhow, it's just you know, Hangar Eighteen was really the last example of this. And interestingly enough, I mean, a lot of this stuff sort of ended up on Saturday morning cartoons in the eighties. But really, there was a lot less visibility as far as uh, mainstream movies. I mean, I would argue that uh, Return of the Jedi, you know, is very much the classic ancient astronaut contact story you know, with uh, the Ewoks being proto-hominids. You know, this whole idea of, you know, the, sort of the giveaway there is Endor, and Endor is the name of Earth in um, the Topian stories. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's a really interesting film. I, I think it was originally created for television. I, I mean, I could be wrong, but it just feels like it. And maybe got shoved into the theaters, you know, just to bury it. Um, the interesting thing about that film, though, is that that was the first uh, big Hollywood film that um, Soviet TV showed. That is it's extremely just, weird. Yeah, it's it's even weirder. Is that this is I, I believe it's during the Andropov area, 
era. And Andropov was the head of the KGB. I mean, this guy was hardline as you get. And they showed that movie, I think, on New Year's Eve 1982. So that's just bizarre. Uh, very, very strange. Um, really makes you wonder. I mean, the, the whole the whole idea, the whole theory is such a football. And, of course, like I said, I mean, look no further than the ancient aliens debunked for proof that that it's a big political football as far as the religious right are concerned. You know, Michael S. Heiser, um, you know, who's really the brains behind that, makes no bones when he's speaking to other Christians that he does films like that in, in his blogs um, because he's trying to keep evangelical Christians on the plantation. I mean, he, he says that, you know, in basically as many words, that I'm doing this, you know, so my fellow fundamentalists won't have their brains contaminated by these subversive ideas. I mean, he doesn't say that in the film because they're trying to, you know, they, they deliberately distort and hide their agenda because they're trying to appeal to the mainstream. But that's, that's an old cult technique. That comes from these uh, CIA cults in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Now, now one here's, so Hangar 18, I'm going to that document that, that, uh, that uh, Darren McGavin drops onto the uh, conference table. The movie was released in 1980. In 1983, uh, Linda Moulton Howe has a story about, uh, she was working on a UFO documentary and she was promised some footage from the Air Force that was going to show, uh, you know, like conclusively it would show that, you know, the Air Force has captured, you know, footage of flying discs. Um, so she was in negotiations to get this film. She ended up at an Air Force base. She was taken into an office. There's all kinds of funny cloak and dagger thing where she was asked to sit in a special chair. They closed the blinds. And then she was handed this document. Um, she wasn't allowed to take any notes. She was just allowed to read it and then, you know, hand it back. And the document was pretty much the document that Darren McGavin reads aloud from in the the Hangar 18 scene in the conference room. Yeah, but, you know, there's a, a I forget where, when from the 50s maybe or the late oh, There's another se- sequence, yeah, with through Disney. No, 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 no. There's a, there's a document that was made, and I don't know if it was the Air Force Academy or the, one of the military academies, you know, basically wrote up, a, you know, something very similar. And it was taught to their officer candidates, either back in the late 40s or 50s. Um, and this is something I've heard on a lot of different uh, UFO documentaries. Ooh, I had to uh, know this. This is that's interesting. Yeah, I, I would have to look that up. But yeah, you know, well, this, 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 same, the same kind of things. And, you know, listen, when it comes to the Air Force, I mean, they are playing a very strange game. Because first of all, the Air Force are very deeply involved in the fundamentalist movement. I mean, you know, things like Colorado Springs, you know, the Air Force has got their hands all over it. And the Air Force Academy is is really a hotbed of, of fundamentalism. But at the same time, the Air Force was very involved in the whole Stargate series. So I don't know. I mean, you know, what what's the agenda there? I mean, they, they certainly seem to have, you know, whether it's two different factions within the Air Force or it's, you know, some, some game they're playing. But... Um, I mean, that's something you can look up as well. The Air Force were very much involved in, in the Stargate series, you know, which is another big... And they're actually credited, you know, right, at the end of the... It's not, it's not hidden at all. They're credited... Right, right at, so, 
that's a thing. That's another thing about Hangar 18 is that um, Nasser was had some sort of involvement in that film. Um, and, and Nasser is very careful about what they choose to associate themselves with. And they were invo- they were thanked in the credits for being involved in that film. And don't forget that NASA was also directly involved in Mission to Mars. And anyone who's seen Mission to Mars, man, I mean, you know that. I mean, that movie makes Eric Von Donneken look like uh, Michael S. Heiser, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that has the, the, the uh, you know, that computer-generated sequence at the very end where it basically spells out uh, the the document that... Uh, that I mean, that might, but see, but that might be... The belief, you know, they, you know, that that the belief might be, and and I, I think there's certainly reasons to argue that if if in in fact ancient astronaut theory is something more than a theory that that the the Anunnaki, so to speak, were from Mars, um, you know, maybe that is the dominant belief system, you know, within certain factions within the military that, that, you know, that human beings are actually Martians, that, that, that this isn't some, you know, they're not from Sirius or, or wherever, that, that Mars was the uh, sort of the, the origin point. And that's a, that Bruce Rux wrote a book uh, on, on exactly that. Yeah. So, I mean, there, I think there, there are good reasons to believe. And, you know, look at the obsession with Mars now. I mean, there's just this mad obsession. You know, there's some, some news that they're holding about Mars, you know, that they've got a, you know, they're saying there's some big bombshell and maybe by the time this airs, um, it'll be released. But there's some big discovery on Mars uh, that they're sort of teasing us with. And yeah, it's a huge, huge effort to get up there. That is really weird, i got to say. Like listening to like, you know, the, the reading the news reports, which basically the news reports are, like, gee, I like, you know, talked to this official at NASA and he says there's some interesting thing in the works, but we can't tell you. Like, I don't, you don't see that kind of like that, that kind of uh, prepping uh, in much else. I mean, that, that was very odd. I mean, that basically at the end of the news report, and I listened to something on NPR and I was like, what, what did that mean? That there, this, it felt like a, it felt like an organized bit of propaganda. You know, here's the thing though. I mean, you have to be really, committed to like the skeptical worldview to, to deny that NASA is just up to their eyes in all this ancient Egyptian symbolism and all this kind of stuff, you know, that they have a much deeper attachment to that, to that whole, you know, philosophy or that whole worldview, identifying these ancient gods with the, you know, with, physical beings with physical aliens, for lack of a better term, you know, it's really hard to, to, you have to throw out a shit ton of evidence to, to ignore that fact. You know, and I know that something that people like to do, just throw away tons of evidence that doesn't fit their, their, you know, inherited worldview. But NASA's all over that stuff. And, you know, people like Hoagland, Proved conclusively, you know, the, the alignments of Sirius with the thirty-third parallel and all this kind of stuff. That just over and over again, you know, maybe three or four times is the barest shred of an outside of a coincidence. But past that, you just you just have to say, all right, well, listen, 
This is their belief system. Yeah. There are no two ways about it. I, I, I just don't take anybody seriously. And I, I don't see why anybody would, would find that, you know, controversial to say that, you know, these people have this belief system. You know, and it doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's true. But, you know, to deny that, you know, they're constantly engaging these these very direct ritual actions, to me, is just, it's illogical. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's irrational. Oh, and just, just the um, the issues surrounding, uh, you know, Mission to Mars, that movie in particular, I just thought that was very, yeah, I mean, very strange. Listen, I mean, that was the selling point on that film, that NASA was in bed with Disney on that film, that, 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 that this was their project. And, and strangely enough that, you know, before the film was released, there's some big manufactured controversy that I didn't buy for a minute. I mean, the movie is, is pretty bad. Let's, let's just say that. Yeah, well, I agree. It's a bad movie. Um, you know, maybe they just weren't happy that it turned out so bad. But they, it's well known that they're, they're making this movie because they're into it. You know, and then you watch the final scene of that movie, and it's just like, come on, give me a break. You know, I mean, it's just, this is the thing that I, just so frustrating to me because the quote unquote skeptical viewpoint is the defaults, that's the socially acceptable viewpoint. But that viewpoint, in order to subscribe to that, and listen, you know, I think it is very important to, to demand evidence for people's claims. You know, that's personally how I run. I think you're going to, find yourself in a world of hurt very soon if you don't do that. But at the same point in time, you know, I don't think being a cheerleader for the establishment is being skeptical. I think that's being a douchebag and yeah. a suck. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I don't think that's being a skeptic. I think that's being an asshole. And, and, and when you do that, and in order to keep that going, that you have to just Every, you know, every UFO is a fucking balloon or swamp gas. You know, it's just, you know, when you just have to just sit there and just blinker yourself. I, I just, I don't know how people do it. It just boggles my mind. You know, listen, I, I find, you know, a lot of UFO people really fucking annoying. I find a lot of conspiracy people, like, really annoying. All, you know, up and down the line. But that doesn't mean that I, I just throw out everything that doesn't conform to what people in boardrooms and corporations want me to believe. That's it's, it's fucking insanity. It's nuts. You know, it really is. It's just, it's, it, it, it requires a degree of denial that is, is, is a refutation of, of the idea of skepticism. It's not skepticism. It's, it's denialism. And from my, yeah, from my point of view, like this, you know, as I, as I push forward in this, uh, you know, what I write, what are these little, these audio podcast things, like I'm not interested in the slightest in trying to change anyone's mind. I'm not interested in, you know, I could care less what the skeptics or the debunkers think uh, that, you know, that is so far off my radar. Um, you know, those issues don't, impact me at all i'm not I'm, I'm not trying to edit myself to to fit their needs at all like my thought is that there, there is something very real going on there's outlying and very strange aspects to the ufo phenomena 
And that's the stuff that I want to dig into. That, that well, to me is finds delicious. You know, yeah. you know what to me is the smoking gun that something is going on that, that people are concerned about is the fact that ridicule is the default position. When you ridicule somebody, you, you are trying to deliberately not engage them. You are trying to dismiss them. You are trying to dehumanize them. You know, when you disagree with somebody and you resort to ridicule, that to me is a hallmark of insecurity. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the bully on the it playground. To me, ridicule is, is it's a sign of cowardice. And it's not the only sign of cowardice. You know, there are so many, if you understand anything about human psychology, you know, and I'm saying something going on. And, and, and I'm not going to get into bogged down to details and, and everything like that because it's, it's irrelevant. You know, I mean, there's so much noise and, and, and to the signal out there. I mean, you know, that's the problem. And, and that's not just dealing with UFOs or synchronicity or, or whatever you want to say. I mean, that's everything on the face of the planet is just bogged down in noise. I mean, just look at all the nonsense, you know? When you, when you go to a, it's a, it's a sign of surrender, you know, that the people are just so defeated and, and, and demoralized that they just don't want to engage in anything other than just novelty and sensationalism. But uh, the thing that just boggles my mind is because they have the establishment on their side, so to speak, that that becomes the default setting, and that anyone who can spend their time you know, poking holes in in the dominant reality paradigm, you know, is just instantly a nut and a kook and a woo woo and all this kind of stuff, and you know, just because that it. Doing so is inconvenient to people who are trying to keep everybody under wraps. You know. Yeah. Hey, we've been at it for just yeah, exactly two hours. So let's do. Um, How are you holding up? Oh, I'm fine. Let's. Uh, you want to do Night Slaves? Uh, which Night Slaves? Oh, that's the one with James Franciscus. Did you watch that? Oh yeah. That was great, wasn't yeah, it? Oh, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, and I think it's funny because I think I actually saw that in the day. Um, I didn't have the direct, like. Uh, like the direct memory of seeing it the way I did. Like I remembered uh, the stranger within so clearly I would have been 12 years old when that, when that came out, I yeah. remembered it almost shot mine. I want to say shot for shot, but I remember so much of the content and it played exactly as I remembered it when I sat in front of the television and watched it now as a, as an adult night slaves had that. I had the sense that I had actually seen it, but I, I didn't remember anything of it. Yeah, that was great. And that was was that part of the movie of the week series? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. ABC that's what... again. I mean, ABC. Uh, uh, somebody was working there who had some interesting shit going on in his head, you know, or yeah, her head. Yeah. yeah, and allowing that stuff to make it to the to the yeah, mainstream. There's definitely a mole there. <laughs> and uh, and I was always a James huge James Franciscus fan. I, he was just mostly because I, at the time at that age, boy. No movie in the world could have like you know I, I no movie I loved more dearly than uh, than uh, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which well, was made just before that by the same director. The thing that's fascinating about that film, and and this is again you know these films that we're discussing, and and we might not get to all of them, but the thing that really fast 
I love these incongruities. Everybody expects War of the Worlds or something like that, right? Now, Night Slaves is, is basically about walkings, and it's about the fact that aliens are, are you know, not only telepathic, but are, you know, non-corporeal beings um, who need human beings to incarnate in this dimension. And, you know, that's something you saw a lot of in the original Star Trek, which really fascinates me. Um, you know, it's, it's almost a very Gnostic kind of idea. Um, but just to see that in this movie, you know, the whole idea that these aliens come here and they, they just pick bodies to, you know, basically incarnate through is just really, really fascinating. But the thing that's even more fascinating to me is the, 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 the way it all plays out that they choose names that um, discredit the guy who can figure out who they are. You know what I mean? In some ways, this story reminds me of um, Corpus Earthling, uh, the Outer Limits episode with Robert Culp. Did you see that one? Uh, yes. I'm just, that's, so- an, that's, you know, the Outer Limits just continues to blow my mind. Um, that episode, I'll just briefly recap what that episode's about. Uh, Robert Culp plays a, a Korean War veteran who has a steel plate in his head. And because of that, he can hear um, these aliens who, who are basically rocks. Yeah, just the little rocks in the lab. Exactly, yeah. And, but they, they also, the aliens can also take possession of human beings. And this whole story plays out. Um, and it's actually based on a novel, but it's, it takes, out, uh, takes place and it's, it's, it's very occult. It's I love I love this stuff that it isn't just ufology that it, there's you know supernatural and occult you know when these things all sort of mix together that's stuff for some reason don't ask me why that's the stuff that seems to resonate with me you know the stuff that just like you know like Close Encounters never felt real to me Close Encounters to me was was a fairy tale but stuff like this for some reason just seems seems to have more of a resonance to it. And don't ask me why. Um, again, maybe it's because of my own personal experiences. But so there's this small town in California that this couple um, vacations in after James Franciscus, uh, who, again, has the steel plate in his head, uh, just like Robert Culp in Corpus Earthling, um, he, he's in a car accident he kills two people and but an elderly couple and the aliens um are using all the people in this town they control them telepathically because they need their their ship to be rebuilt and every night they're summoned uh on these trucks and everything and taken to this factory on the outskirts of town to, to rebuild this um Spaceship. It's an incredible movie. It's and and then there's also within the UFO lore, like the mass abduction thing shows yeah, up. That's, yeah, that, that's basically what it is. But you know, if you've if you've read or seen, if you've read the Tommy Knockers by Stephen King, I mean, he just I, the ripoff is just mind boggling that, that he just totally stole this from the Night Slaves. I mean, it, it's just an appalling uh, plagiarism. 
just uh, astonishing ripoff. I mean, it's just amazing because the Tommy knockers is basically stolen directly from the story. But anyway, so um, James Franciscus is immune to this because of the steel plate in his head. And he meets um, this girl uh, played by this adorable actress named Tisha Sterling. So beautiful. Um, so cute. And they sort of develop this whole relationship. And the way this whole story plays out is that it breaks every rule of a UFO drama that you would expect from that time period, you know, and certainly from today. I mean, it just, it doesn't play out at all like you would expect. It's all very, um, it's almost like an occult story. Uh, very, very strange. Yeah. Yeah, but that was because of that. It just seems to resonate with me. But the the guy who plays, and an interesting thing is, it reminded me of um, you know the whole lore of Men in Black, you know, trying to discredit witnesses and stuff, because James Franciscus is discredited because the the aliens introduced themselves, um, taking the names of the people whom he killed in the accident, but just spelled in reverse, and just. Details like that, just like whoever wrote this story just seems to have a very much deeper understanding or much deeper intuition of this, of, of, you know, UFO lore and all this kind of stuff, you know, what, like all these films, I sort of call them Magonian movies because it's, it's a much different and deeper and stranger, you know, more along the lines of John Keel and, <clears throat> excuse me, and Jacques Vallée, you know, just that, that much richer and weirder, you know, uh, interpretation of this whole phenomenon, but even more interesting is that the, um, the head alien Noel, um, played by uh, Andrew Prime, and around the same time or just before Andrew Prime was in a great, great movie called Simon King of the Witches. And he plays this modern-day warlock, and it was actually written by a practicing warlock, so it's, you know, it's very well delineated. But Simon, um, in this film, he's, he has these contacts with these orbs, and the, the continuity you know, between uh, Simon King of the Witches and, and Night Slaves you know, and through this actor is just one of these things that I just... I can think about for a long time, you know, it's just the, the, the improbability of it all. But if you see, uh, you know, that, that Night Slaves is a UFO movie that, that plays like, you know, sort of an occult story. And Simon King of the Witches is an occult story that plays sort of like a UFO story. <laughs> yes. And then, and then, uh, uh, James Franciscus in uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes is is parallels very much the same thing, where he's basically the alien that arrives on the planet, you know, and uh, you know discovers this this uh, you know the two divergent you know timelines. Well, that movie too is very interesting because um, the guy who wrote it had been blacklisted during the fifties, and was was very much subversive. And if you watch that movie, that movie is very much about it's a it's a very uncomfortable foreshadowing of the religious right. 
Oh, the, the, the folks under underground. Yeah. Worshipping yeah. the bomb. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember watching, I remember watching some program on Sunday morning on, I don't know if it was, you know, the old, uh, TBN or, or something like that. Basically it was a guy and he was dressed in clerical garb, he, but he was, a, he was a Protestant minister, but he was wearing a Roman collar. And basically, you know, rather than, you know, preaching the gospel or whatever, he was just reading, you know, like from Jane's Defense Weekly or something, just reading, you know, how many missiles and things that the Soviets had. I mean, it, it was just, it was astonishing to me. And it's just that whole worship of, of destruction and death and, and, and militarism that we saw, you know, emerge in the 70s is very eerily foreshadowed by Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I think that's a very prescient film in, in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And, um, yeah, that one, I remember it's funny. I had that one on super eight. I had, it was probably like 20 minutes of the movie. It was silent black and white super eight. And I can't tell you how many times I watched the, that little super eight, um, thing in the basement of my house in Michigan. Well, I'll tell you something else is that I used to get the old, um, Planet of the Apes comics from Marvel, the old black and white comics that I just were the centerpiece of my life. But the interesting thing about that, those comics is that they did not, um, work from the uh, shooting scripts. They worked from the original scripts. So they would put a lot of the stuff in the movies. I mean, in their movie adaptations that wasn't actually in the movie stuff that got cut out before it was shot. And actually their adaptation of battle for the planet of the apes is much better than the movie because the movie was, was really hacked to bits because they, you know, they were told they had to make it for like $800,000 and stuff like this. Um, the, the, the comic book version is, is actually much better than the, um, and it's funny because the second time I went to, um, to Esalen, I, I made a point that Jeff needed to invite Doug Mensch who wrote all those stories. And that's like my first time I read about like a, uh, a peyote trip it was in a Planet of the Apes comics. And that was Doug Mensch. Doug Mensch also wrote. Uh, the big book of conspiracies and the big book of the paranormal, uh, two books that are just, you know, must haves. And, and also Doug Mensch had that, that mystical experience, which, uh, is yeah, I wouldn't right the, mystical. Well, mystical is the wrong term. Terrifying nightmare experience. Let me put it that way. Yeah. That, that begins Jeff Kripal's book, uh, mutants and monsters. Yeah. I, I, I kind of feel like very proud of that because, you know, um, Jeff, you know, and I became good friends after my first trip out there. Um, and he was putting together the, the, actually the second superpower symposium was, was, was much better than the first. I mean, he really got a handle on what he, you know, um, Jacques Vallée was there again. Um, but, uh, he really got a, a much better handle on, on, and who he wanted to have there. And, you know, he invited me back, um, but he also um, asked me, you know, who, who I thought would be really good for this. And I said, you know, you should really have Doug Mensch out there because, you know, Doug Mensch is really a guy who really brought that whole, you know, Robert Anton Wilson kind of sensibility to comics. You know, he really was that. And it's funny because if you meet Doug, I mean, he's 
he's like a, a real life Ben Grimm. He's such a curmudgeon. He's, he's su such a character. He really is like a cartoon character himself. But uh, he told that story to Jeff and Jeff just flipped his lid. And that's why it became sort of the, uh, the focal point on, on a lot of the work that you've done afterwards. Yeah. He, but, and, oh, and uh, um, Jeff Kripal's working on a documentary. I don't know where it is in production at this point, but there's a, there's what a monster. Be possible. Yeah. Yeah. I was a, actually interviewed for that. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another thing though, is that one thing Jeff made sure he did um, is that he had, uh, you know, not only did he have comics people and, you know, the first year I was there, he had, you know, Jacques Filet was there and Bertrand was there. Well, I'm not going to try and mangle his name again, but there was also a Mufon, a, a woman from Mufon there. And also um, David Hufford from, I think from Tufts, Tufts University, but he's done a lot of work on like sleep paralysis and on um, like incubus and succubus lore and stuff like that. So that was a, you know, pretty interesting mix uh, together. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me that um, this, this link between, you know, remote viewing and, and ufology. And it's something that I think that, again, is one of these sort of incongruous links that not a lot of people understand, but, you know, certainly, you know, you saw a lot of in the X-Files and stuff. And I always wondered if there was something there, some mechanism there that, that the same signal that people are picking up on um, that leads to contact experiences and stuff like that, you know, manifests itself in a, in a different way through, through remote viewing. And I'll tell you something. I'm going to tell you something right now. I was really, really skeptical about remote viewing because all I knew about it was like, you know, Ed Dames and Art Bell and stuff like that. I mean, I just thought it was a joke. And the guy who was there the first year was Russell Targ, who's basically the guy who set the whole sh shop up. Uh, and he sort of showed up in an episode of Millennium, you know, allegorized um, uh, in a, something that I've written about on the blog as well. But um, I was like, oh, this is just nonsense. This was just like some Cold War. Th and I think I'd probably even seen like Man Who's Stericos before I'd gone out. I'm not exactly sure on the timeline there, but um, I just thought this was a joke. But then he goes, well, listen, I'm going to do a, a test and, you know, I'm going to put something in a bag and I want... He didn't put something in a bag. He goes, I've got this bag here. And there's a there's an object in here, and I want you to draw what it was. And the first my first attempt, I drew the silhouette of the object. And what was and the object? It was an uh, an apple slicer, but it had a very strange silhouette. And I drew it the first time out. And and the the Mufon woman, um, I don't know if she drew it or if she wrote um, apple slicer or something like that. Which, which I thought was really fascinating. Huh? And I have, I was, I was, I saw Russell Targ at a UFO conference, and he did the exact same thing. He said, "Okay, on the next slide, I'm about to show, you know, I want you to draw what you will be seeing." And so, um, I drew this thing, and what I saw was, um, a like a gazebo in a town square, and I saw it as, 
like curly, swirling barbed wire with these with these hooked barbs, and I drew it like like it was like was it thorns on a rose bush? It was all swirling and these hooked things, and I tried to draw it. It was like in a town square kind of thing, or in like a you know, and there were cement benches. I remember seeing very clearly cement benches. So I draw these things that like the cement benches were a different drawing, and then the gazebo with the swirling barbed wire was another drawing, and then he um clicks the button and shows the slide and it was uh, the Stanford uh, Commons you know where he was teaching oh wow and it had um Do you uh, have a gazebo and stuff well it had a sculpture in the middle of like a, a like a college uh town square and the sculpture was these dolphins all like you know the dolphins were like swimming and swirling around so like the way the sculptor did it the nose of one dolphin was touching the tail of another dolphin yeah, so yeah, it, yeah. it allowed them to like an ouroboros or something yeah and but but when you looked at the dolphins and you kind of just all you'd have to do is just blur your vision slightly you know when you get right down to it, dolphins aren't much more than like a little tube with these little little uh, like rose thorn you know their fins and their their you know their uh, dorsal fin and their tails um all you know match so in essence i had drawn quite accurately i you know and it had the cement uh, benches all around it and i remember at the time right at the moment i just went huh well that doesn't match at all Puh. and then the next day i looked at it and it was this 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 denial and then looking back at it and going, whoa, is, is something that is, is part of the overall phenomenon, I'm convinced. Um, so when I look back at it, I'm like, wait a minute, I actually got that really closely. And I sat with him for maybe 20 minutes and we talked for a long time, just one-on-one. And he was, he was, I, I, I was really impressed. He was very eager to sit with me and just, and sort of talk about, you know, oh, he's a wonderful guy. yeah, he's I was, I was, I was so delighted by his presence. Yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you something else. Um, I've, I don't know if I discussed this on your show. I, maybe I did, but um, I do a lot of work with hyp- hypnagogic meditation. Okay. And basically what this is about is sort of, sort of bypassing the conscious filters of the mind. And, you know, I have sort of this whole setup that I, I kind of do this and I use music and stuff. Um, but when I, and this is this is one of the reasons that I just when people talk about alien abduction phenomena being hypnagogic, it just drives me nuts because they just have no idea what that even means. And 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 so much of the hip, uh, of the alien abduction stuff happens like you know outside you know in lonely roads as well as you know busy roads. So yeah, know, people being taken from their cars. It's very is is very it's not narrative. It's 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 nonlinear. Um, you know, it just it doesn't work that way. But anyway. Um, couple things that are, are interesting is that I, I one thing that I always I talked about you know very early on in the, in the history of the um, the secret sun is you know what I call the secret alphabet you know that when I was doing this hypnagogic work when I closed my eyes you know I'll see these fields of these strange characters these strange like it looks like an alphabet um, and if you've seen the second Transformers movie that's sort of like a cartoon version of it but I, you know that's something that you know, it's very common to me, but it's and it's something I can never sit down and draw these shapes because the field is, you know, and that's how I describe it. It's it's sort of like looking at um, a video sc- screen or or a monitor with a number of different characters that are just constantly 
moving and shifting and, and changing and morphing. So it's, it, you know, it's, it, I can never sit down and, and draw what these characters look like because as soon as I try and lock onto one of them, the field morphs and, and changes. Um, but also, one thing that I started to experience, and I'm not exactly sure what the timeline was on this, but it, it was bizarre. Like I would, you know, reach these this state, you know, a, a, you know, nice hypnagogic state, and I would have like I would have almost like you know that scene in 2001 when like the camera sort of you know, shooting over these different landscapes. Like very clear, very vivid, like that I was moving through this landscape aerially and seeing all these different things that were just I'd never been to. I'd never, I, I don't recall seeing on television, or whatever. I mean, it could be just strictly an artifact of the the hypnagogic you know, that 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 the mind is creating these these you know these very clear imaginary landscapes, but you know. I couldn't help but think of, of remote viewing, you know, when I was experiencing this. And, I, and experiencing it a number of times that it was not just some fluky kind of random thing. And as far as I know, I don't believe that hypnagogia was, was used by the, the remote viewers themselves. But I know that they, you know, the whole point is to, to bypass those linear, rational filters. You know, I mean, there are certain very positive and powerful uses to, to, to rationalism and, and linear thinking and things like that. But the, it does have the limitations, you know. Uh, the more uh, a fetishes, the more a, a, a culture fetishizes linear thinking and, and rationalism, I, I think the less healthy it becomes because it's, it's sort of like no, no longer dreaming. You know, you stop dreaming, and we all know that if you don't dream, that has very destructive uh, effects on your on your psyche, yeah, and on your body as well. Yes, and here let me just add that Lynn Buchanan, one of the original remote viewers, um, along with uh, Joe McMonagle, uh, uh, recently came out and just dis- described his, you know, his alien abduction history, starting in his youth. Oh well, that doesn't describe. Uh, you know, that doesn't that surprise. Doesn't me Doesn't surprise me at all. But I mean, it is whatever it is. Like, boy, that puzzle piece just you know click just fits into the overall mosaic perfectly. Like, you know what I mean? Like, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. And it's funny because we've had this discussion ourselves, and I don't know if we had it when I was on your show, but when I talked about that whole leprechaun hallucination, that it the the surface narrative was you know from folklore, but if you deconstruct the experience, you know, as I can still very vividly picture it, it it's also very ufological as well, you know? Exa- uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, know, that's like the, the, that's the noise and, and, and all that stuff. And, and see, this is when I start to, to really think that there is not only something external, you know, like, listen, when one person has a vision, it's a hallucination. When two people have hallucination it's not a hallucination it's something else and that's just the way it is and you know again the thing that's really put me down this whole track and I've, I've spoken this before but when I went to see Graham Hancock discuss his book Supernatural and he basically you know described that same experience that I had that was you know very common with with people who were working with ayahuasca 
So there's obviously something in the collective. And you had a high fever at the time. Yeah, oh yeah. And you know, and he had said that 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 can bypass the same filters. And that's when I when I really when I really see this. And and that's again when I, I lock into this whole idea of the signal. But that experience that um, I wrote about on Facebook that you were very instrumental in uh, contributing to, uh, I was sober as a judge when that happened. So, And that was the event with the, 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 the glowing figure at night near your home. Yeah, and that was uh, like almost two and a half years now ago. But, I mean, I was no fever, you know. Not drinking. <laughs> yeah, no. They, they ex- you know, so, I mean, um, as, as tempting as it is to uh, try and rationalize a lot of this stuff away, um, it just doesn't work that way. And I think it's designed to not work that way because, you know, as Whitley Strieber had said on your show, that there is some sort of evolutionary intent in all of this. And I think that evolutionary intent really is a software issue. Okay. And this gets back to the metaphor I was using before. Um, you know, computer companies, when they evolve, become, if they survive, become software companies, not hardware companies. You know, that the goal is to let other people do the, the, the hardware work because that's not where the money is and that's not where the prestige is and I think you know that there was something more to that than just simple economics and I just can't help but think of these strange you know incongruous episodes of Star Trek about uh, you know like say Return to Tomorrow and you know these disembodied intelligence and there's tons of them in the, the next generation and, and then, you know, the entire series of, of Deep Space Nine sort of, uh, you know, the disembodied alien intelligence inducing virtual reality, <laughs> nonlinear virtual reality experiences. Uh, you, know, you, you sort of have to wonder, you know, especially since um, as, as much as you want to dismiss it and sort of tie it up in a bow and then just go about, you know, Watching Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, or whatever, you know, you can't, you can't do that if you're if you're honest, if you're an honest person. Yeah. Um. Anyone? Any other b- movies on the list here that you want to touch well, on? We've got, um, we've got uh, the Invaders. I did want to talk about the Invaders. Great, uh, great. The Invaders is <clears throat> is interesting because um, that's a Quinn Martin production. Um, Quinn Martin also did uh, the FBI and a bunch of things like that. A Quinn Martin production. Yeah, yeah, no, that was actually the 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 I, the, the Naked Gun was originally a TV series. Um, you know, I think there was only five episodes. So I think you can get them online now. That, that it played really well as a TV series, better than the movies, I think. Be, and they were they were parodying. I mean, police squad. A oh, police squad. Thank you. In yeah, yeah. 1982, I, I loved that show. Yeah, the police great. squad, and then it then it turned into the feature films was the, the Naked Gun. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It, the series is much funnier. Yeah, and it was it was very much a parody of the Quinn Martin production, and they had the guy that did the voiceover of the Quinn Martin production. Um, you know, they did Streets of San Francisco and Cannon, and yeah, yeah, just all of Barnaby Jones so, and 
So the Invaders is another January 10th. Is that, that, that Those are your notes there, that it premiered on January 10th? Oh, okay. Okay, so that's another hit there. Um, yeah, so the interesting thing about that show is a couple of different things. Is one is that a lot of people who are involved in The Outer Limits and Star Trek um, were involved in The Invaders. Um, so there's almost sort of... A, a continuity, you know, more actually towards Outer Limits. Uh, you know, that Outer Limits and, and Invaders have a lot of continuity. And actually, Outer Limits and Star Trek do as well. Um, a lot of people both uh, in front of and behind the camera in the Outer Limits got involved in Star Trek. Um, so the Invaders is basically, um, you know, it's it's sort of invasion of the body snatchers in some ways, you know, the lone voice of reason trying to alert the world of this slow motion subversion by, you know, an alien force. Um, and it had, uh, all the, a lot of great, um, 60 starlets in it as well. Uh, Susan Oliver from the, uh, the Star Trek, pilot was in two different episodes but there's also a very interesting idea that the um the whole idea of virtual reality and this is i think was very avant-garde for the time that the aliens had the capability to induce virtual reality uh you know in david vincent um, and that's something that I think, I don't know if anybody else was doing that at the time. I, I, I can't think of any previous versions uh, of the UFO invasion mythos that, that we're doing that. Can you? Before no, no, it, it, well, maybe if we could sort of deconstruct some, some Outer Limits episodes or something, but, but uh, not really. You know, I haven't actually seen that many of the Invaders episodes, and yeah, I don't I, remember well, it at the time. the entire series. Um, yeah, so that's really fascinating. Now, uh, here's something that's interesting about The Invaders is that he was also – Quinn Martin was also doing The FBI, which was a long-running series. I have the notes here. It ran from 65 to 74. Yeah. And um, The Invaders is kind of just tucked in there for two seasons um, from 67 to 68. Yeah. And, the problem with The Invaders, I think, is that um, it, it, it has sort of a sameness to the episodes. You know, the, there's no – the narrative doesn't really – go anywhere and i think the guy who created it had you know the guy who created it is a guy named larry cohen and um there's another movie that he did that people really need to see um a movie called god told me to is that have you seen that movie no i don't know anything about it oh my god god told me to is one of the first of all larry cohen was um the guy who did the it's alive movies which were big in the drive-ins in the in the 70s but he he created the invaders. I mean, it was not created by Quinn Martin. It was created by Larry Cohen, and it was sort of taken away from him. And he was kind of upset by that, and he didn't feel like they really handled it the way he he would have done. It is pretty square when you watch it. I mean, it does feel like it, it has like all the kind of low brow trappings of of like a mediocre detective show. Yeah, it does. But you know, it's got all those great '60s haircuts and clothes and cars and. 
It sure yeah. has that, yeah. And, and Everybody like guest stars it. like uh, Roddy McDowell and uh, Gene Hackman he actually shows up in one of the episodes. Oh, all of them. Dabney Coleman, Suzanne Plachette. I mean, it's just all-star cast. Um, and everybody just looked so great back then. Everybody had great clothes and great hairstyles. And just before, you know, the 70s kicked in and everybody just started looking awful. Yeah, the schlubby thing, yeah. Yeah, but everybody just, you know, everybody just looked sharp, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was you actually know, sort of the tail great, end of the sharp aspect of the sharp era of the 60s, you know. So. Like those mock turtlenecks and the, and the, the pleated slacks. and the, Yeah, the tight white jeans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everybody just looked fantastic. Um, the women all, you know, their white lipstick and the – oh, fantastic. Anyway, um, God told me to – people need to see this movie. Um, really disturbing movie. Crazy movie um it's about um this secret society uh, that worships this human alien, human alien hybrid um and he is worshiped as god and he telepathically um you know mind controls people to to, to, to kill and it's just really, I, I can imagine, like, if you were in a, a paranoid state of mind, you know, when that movie came out, that movie might have tipped some people over the edge. It, you know, even today, it's kind of difficult to, to process. Uh, interestingly enough, it's one of um, Andy Kaufman's first movie roles. Oh, my word. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. Way. He plays, a, um, and it's nothing like you would expect. I mean, he plays a very dark role in it. Um but it's a fantastic film. And again, it's this whole idea of this supernatural, occult, psychic UFO crossover. You know, the, the genres are all very muddled. Um, and, uh, you know, it has a very... Uh, the actress Sylvia Sidney, who a lot of people will recognize from, from a lot of different films and stuff, she um, plays an alien abductee who was, um, you know, impregnated and gave birth to another human-alien hybrid in the film. So, um, and it sort of becomes, you know, about that, uh, but very stark and very um, grim. I mean... Not what you expect. Totally lacking in sentimentality and, and, and kind of brutal in a way. But Larry Cohen was also known as a guy who was sort of a guerrilla filmmaker because there's this whole scene during the uh, St. Patrick's Day Parade that he shot without getting permission to do so. He didn't get permits. He filmed this whole scene. And, and this was one of the things that he was known for is that, you know, he was like a guerrilla filmmaker. But... Um, you guys want to see like a really heavy movie that's that really takes a lot of these themes and, and jumbles them all together. Definitely recommend that movie. You know, now what's interesting about Quinn Martin, so the invaders was made at the same time as the FBI and, and uh, uh, all the scripts to the FBI for the, you know, the FBI series had to go through Hoover, you know, and so he would send these things off and, and uh, to, you know, the main desk there at uh, the FBI and they had to be approved. So this is, you know, like here's a guy who had connections 
like, you know, deep inside connections with the FBI. Now, I don't know. I'm just speculating. Like, I don't know what that might mean. You know, the implications of like the uh, I've there's plenty of evidence that Hoover was you know, aware of the UFO phenomena and the FBI was aware of the UFO phenomena. Well, there's actually a memo. I mean, there are me- there's a paper trail on that. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what does that mean? You know, like, did, did you know, we're quit, did, you know, like that this show got its approval through, you know, the highest, uh, you know, whatever, like, to, it made it to primetime television. That, that's anything that made it to primetime television when there were only four, three networks is, is interesting. To well, me. here's another interesting thing is that the last movie that Quinn Martin made was the a TV- only the only movie he ever made. The only actually feature film was uh, called The Aliens Are Coming. Oh, no, wait a minute. That's I don't. OK, I'm gonna write this one down, too. Nine, and that, again, that's 1980. Huh. And then he also made the Mephisto Walls. Yeah, oh yeah. And that was actually originally a TV movie, and then some nudity was added for a European release, and then it was, you know, the, the European cut was released on DVD. That is one of my favorite movies of all time. I love that movie. Oh, I just saw it. I had never heard of it. I just saw it recently. I thought that uh, Alan Alda was kind of curiously miscast, but... Um, Oh, but he's great. That's what, that's what's so great about it. Well, he's good. Yeah, I thought he was very good in it, in the sense that he, you know, he, he wore his you know brooding artist you know hat during the film in a way, and uh, you know he, he, he uh, it seemed uh, somewhat believable that he was the cynical journalist. But he, I, I always get the sense that he's like you know wants to be Groucho Marx or something. Yeah, well, that's because of Mash. Yeah, and he was also he's supposedly Groucho Marx used to come to his house. His father was a. Was a was an author, a famous uh, journalist, as I recall, Robert Alda. Yeah, no, he was an actor. Oh, an actor. Okay, and was friends with Groucho. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So you know, it's funny as we're speaking. I'm I'm looking up a um a YouTube uh, user that has a lot of these TV movies. Um, do you remember a movie called um, The Stranger? Nineteen seventy three. Oh, just give me, give me a little more. I'm pretty good at this kind of thing. Uh, when his spacecraft passes through a vortex and he's forced to crash land, astronaut is captured and led to believe he was on Earth. No, no, no. I never heard that. Yes. Uh, very interesting. Um, yeah, I find it very interesting that, that, that Quinn Martin's last, you know, production was uh, The Aliens Are Coming. And that he, you know, again, the the... The FBI was basically, you know, propaganda. Essentially, that he was basically, you know, working through them. That he, you know, that he could not, you know, that he had to make, like you said, he he had to have um, Hoover sign off on it. But but he was also part of a generation that would have not, you know, tried to subvert that. And yeah. and it's under, so, and it's interesting because every every reference I've ever seen to the. To, you know, actually, whatever, I just did some Google research on it. I didn't dig very deep. But um, it was, you know, I saw it numerous times that he initially was, whatever, that his political leanings did not in any way match uh, Hoover's political leanings. And he, he took on the, the job, you know, grudgingly. Um, and it became a big hit, which is weird because it, it's, it's almost unwatchable now. Uh, it's so bland. Um, and Well, that's uh, like Jack Webb did that Project UFO. Um, which yeah. was in the early 80s. Yeah, that was the last thing he did. Well, that was actually was the late seventies. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because apparently that started off where it was just basically sort of towing the blue book line, and then from what I've read, that it became a little less 
you know, skeptical party line as as the series went along. I, I don't, maybe that was because, you know, I mean, there's really no market for, for UFO debunking. I'm, you know, there's, nobody wants to hear it. Well, interesting that I remember the show, the the UFO show that Jack Webb did. It was not a UFO debunking. It was it was sort of the odd cases within Blue Book, you know. So it was very much, um, you know, it showed uh, these the you know the the unanswerable cases. And it's, well, I'll tell you. Well, here's the thing. Again, I I, tr- I tried watching some of it because you know you can find the, pretty much the entire series online, and it, it was so inert. You know, just that seventies inertia television that you just feel like you're being suffocated while you're watching. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, my memory too. It was pretty bad. But from what I've read about it, that it did start off where it was trying to sell the, the blue book party line, but it, you know, as the series progressed, it began to deviate from it. But that ran for two for two years. I was, I was actually kind of surprised by that yeah and then i think that 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 had its uh, momentum you know because it came on the heels of uh close encounters that's that's exactly right yeah but you know it's interesting because you know jack webb was you know mr squareness as well i guess quinn martin was probably a little less square than you know but again i mean the the, the studio system you, you you had to play ball you know and a, and a guy like that you know larry cohen was very upset about how the invaders was handled, but you know, really didn't have a lot of say in it, you know, because there was no such thing as creator rights back then, unless you were somebody like Aaron Spelling and you had a lot of power, you know. Yeah. yeah. Mephisto Waltz is a um, very interesting movie in, in a lot of different ways. Um, a lot of it is, you know, Jacqueline Bissett is so fantastic in that movie. Oh my gosh, she's she's hypnotic, yeah. And she's so gorgeous in it too. And oh, there's this... So- so beautiful. There's a scene early on where she, uh, you know, they're at the party and the the, the old piano player is is uh, escorting them to the door, saying goodnight, and this you know this black dog you know comes growling and and runs up to them. It's very menacing, and the the sort of devil worshipping piano you know elder grabs the dog and and sort of says, oh you know, my, what do you think of my baby or whatever? And she looks down at the dog and gives this like there's a close-up of her face and she kind of growls back at the oh, dog. Oh, so sexy. Oh, my God. I just knew that, like, okay, well, whatever's going down, she's, like, she's no shrinking violet. Well, you know, it's funny, um, you know, just to start wrapping this up, it's interesting that all the stuff we're talking about is all the stuff that, you know, the guys who made the X-Files all loved. I mean, you can see so many, X, like, the X-Files, to me, one of the reasons I think I glommed onto it so powerfully is that it was all this great... St- and Chris Carter said this again and again. He wanted to make something like Col- uh, Colchak the Night Stalker and The Outer Limits and The Twilight Zone and, you know, all this stuff that he loved as a kid that nobody was doing anymore. And, you know, you can just see... When you go back and watch these things, you know, The, the Invaders is another one he was into. You know, stuff like the Norris tapes. You know, all these obscurities. It's so clear, you know, that, that, that he and the rest of the people working for him... You know, particularly in those first, you know, those first five seasons, the Vancouver era, you know, the essential classic X-Files era that everybody can really agree on. It's so obvious that, that over and over again, they are just really picking up on that, all this great stuff and just putting it all together. Um, even, uh, 
you know, the stuff we can't get to because it's a little far afield, but there was, this, uh, you know, what's called the the occult detective. And, and that's technically what, you know, the Night's Doctor and the X-Files and things like that. The, the genre is called the occult detective. But there were, I had written about this on the blog, um, Louis Jardin, who I thought was just fantastic in his films. There was a series, proposed series called Bedeviled, um, where he played an occult detective. And, and one of the... Uh, TV movies that I wrote about took, you know, was aired in 1970 and had all the very strange and disturbing parallels to the Manson situation. Oh, oh yeah, I watched that one the other night. Yeah, um, but you know, that TV movie—it's so obvious that um, there's an X Files episode called uh, "Dehan de Verlets, which is about this um, satanic cult within this uh, junior high school. That's so obviously uh, inspired by that movie as well. You know, these guys were all into this stuff. They were all like, you know, that's why I think that I, I just really focused on this because, it, you know, you remember just what incredible impact this stuff had on you as a kid. You know, and even like all the stuff like the Parallax View and Three Days of the Condor and all the President's Men and Winter Kills, you know, all these great conspiracy movies um, that all that whole genre dried up when Reagan came into town as well. Um, you know, that stuff just had such an impact on me. Um, yeah. And oh my even gosh. Stuff like Rollerball. Um, you know, you, there's, a, there's a tendency to sound like, you know, a crotchety old man here. But um, I think a lot of people, you know, will agree that that, that was a pretty rare and special time. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things from the 70s that I'm not nostalgic for, believe me. Uh, and, mo and you know, to be honest with you, most television in the 70s was horrifically terrible. Yes. Um, you know, particularly the second half. The second half of the 70s was pretty bad. The, interestingly enough, the early 80s, things got a lot, you know, Hill Street Blues, Lou Grant. Uh, you know, there was definitely a, a renaissance, but the second half of the 70s, and you're know, talking about things like Starsky and Hutch and Charlie's Angels, and oh, just one mindless, you know, pile of garbage after another. Yeah, yeah, that was very, and that was. It's like when everything around it is so bad, you really focus on the things that are so good, you know, like the things that really speak to you. Well, but, yeah, 90% of everything is pretty bad when you get right down. Well, I, that's being generous. Yeah. But I think the fact that not only is this stuff like really well done, really well made, but just really resonates on such a strange and deep level, you know, that's what really captures my attention you know what were these guys tapped into and I, I really do believe that they were you know like they were tapped into something they were tapped into something deeper you know and you can argue about whether it's something in the in the subconscious mind or whatever but again you know it's like when people say oh it's the collective unconscious and all this kind of stuff i'll just say well you know where Jung got that from <laughs> you know once you go read you know, I know where he got that from. He got that from the uh, the Mithraic liturgy. Why don't you go read that and then get back to me? <laughs> but so. yeah, so what it's yeah, I love the so the metaphor of the hardware and the software is great. You know what I mean? There's like you know this oh, obviously I, I some stuff. More, you know, I think see that's the thing is I I really focus on that 
more and more all the time because so many people are focused on the software. They they want, I mean, I'm sorry, the hardware. They because we grew up, you know, in a very exoterically oriented culture. It's what we've been conditioned to expect, you know, particularly if you were raised in a religious tradition. And, you know, all the religious traditions are inherently exoteric. Um, But I think that the internet, um, computer, software, I mean, all these things are giving us new models to understand these things. You know, our understanding is constantly evolving because our external models are giving us new ways to look at these experiences. Um, you know, and the fact that so many people just want to shut the conversation down to me should just in- encourage people, you know, um, if you weren't on the right track, people wouldn't be trying to shut you down. You know, that's basically how, how I see it. You know, people are only trying to steer you away and, and re- ridicule you and put you off the path because you're on the right one. You know, and, and believe me, this doesn't mean abandon your critical faculties and ac- abandon your your discernment and, and all these sort of things. I mean, put you know, keep that bullshit detector on full blast. But you know, just realize that there are so many reasons to continue. Oh yeah, and and, 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 and again, I mean, li- listen, you know, I am not a ufologist, right? I have a very strange interpretation of it that, that if I went to a UFO convention, a lot of people would probably find me distasteful, <laughs> to say the least. But again, it's like I struggled for years and years to try and wrap my head around, you know, when I was into this conspiracies and secret societies and symbolism and synchronicity. I mean, that was sort of like my, the four basic food groups of my, uh, intellectual diet and those are all interlinked with the ufo yeah exactly and and i think the fact that you know you saw people um like um bill cooper you know naval intelligence shill suddenly change i mean bill cooper is an interesting story because here's a guy who is pimping the most ridiculous and outlandish you, you know ufo and alien theories for years right Yes. This is a guy who, you know, first of all, everybody who knows him, who knew him, just doesn't, you know, kind of idolize him from a distance. Everybody who actually knew him said he was a dangerous maniac. He was a lunatic and, you know, an abusive personality and a a sociopath. So, I mean, most people are going to maybe just gloss that over because they're looking for some hero worship. You know, but just the fact that for years and years he he was out there pimping the most ridiculous, you know, crazy Hollywood sub Hollywood UFO conspiracies and and interpretations, and then all of a sudden has this one eighty degree turnaround, and all of a sudden he's pushing the whole, you know, religious right uh, paranoia. I mean, how can anybody take him seriously? You know, it's so it's so obviously an operation. He's so obviously an operative. So obviously an operative who was decided that he was no longer useful, you know, whether he was disposed with intentionally or he just was so crazy that he got himself shot. I mean, I kind of lean either way sometimes. 
But it's so obvious that he was an operative. And why would you have an operative poking around in these weird, obscure areas to begin with? You know, what about the Benowitz affair? You know, why would you have these people trying to manipulate this if there wasn't something that they're trying to steer people away from? Exactly. Yeah, I do. Richard Dolan speaks beautifully on that. Like, you know, um, you know, he printed up all the MJ-12 documents, you know, and read them all. And they were a great big stack. You know, it's like a big stack, like two and a half inches thick. <clears throat> and he read them all and he said, boy, if this is fake, you know, the, the level of sophistication of the fake means something. You know, someone worked darn hard to confuse the UFO uh, lore. Well, someone, I mean, that's present tense. Yeah, it's a verb. It's a, yeah, it's, it's an active it's, verb. It's, it's happening right yeah. now. Yeah. It's, it's going. And, and then why is that going on? You know, why is this, why, why is the religious right so involved in trying to um, debunk ancient astronaut theory, you know, and why are they lying about it? You know, they're doing it. And then they're they're not telling people that that's what they're doing. Um, that's, you know, they're deceiving people, you know, White and Heiser are not telling people that they're doing this on behalf of the religious right program. Well, why aren't they doing that? Because they're trying to hide something. When somebody lies, they're trying to hide something. So, I don't know. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, anyway, so we've been doing this for what? Three hours? Oh, good grief! Yeah, I'm look. I just might. I'm looking at the clock. We're getting right up to three you hours. Some, you might want to do some editing here. I'll, I'll get in there and, and snip out a little bit. But um, yeah, but uh, yeah, this was great. Um, yeah. So the, the what you know what was also going on is there's like a level of seriousness to this stuff that was kind of lost after um, Close Encounters, which which was more flashy than than cerebral, you know. Uh, and, oh, I mean the stuff that like these movies and oh, stuff. Oh yeah, there was so. But that's like, everything in Hollywood. I mean, you're describing everything in Hollywood. I mean, that's just you know the the te- technology to create really good special effects improved, and that's what people wanted to go see. So that yeah. just influenced everything. Yeah. Great. I will keep you up to date on this. And, and uh, any final? I mean, whatever. It seems like we've exhausted every little thing here. I was. I had a great big long list. We hit most of it. And uh, and this has been this has been you've actually dragged me down this path in a way just because you keep on bringing up these movies and uh, you know it's 2012 now and with a few clicks of a mouse either through Netflix or some sort of online uh, movie viewing system I can watch all these these amazing things so um, you oh, know, these yeah. things that are kind of dismissed they're not like you know golden classics from Hollywood that are you know that some lawyer is trying to keep an eye on you know these things are are completely sliding in under the radar beneath the radar yeah. yeah well that's that's the stuff i love you know i love to find i'm the kind of guy who likes to go to you know thrift stores and old bookstores and find buried treasure you know i was telling my wife i was looking at my my book my bookshelf in my room and i have this um the out of limits companion and uh a, a, a really obscure book on star trek and then this this great old david bowie book and I was like, you know, two of these books I got for 50 cents at the old bookstore, you know, and the other one I got for a couple bucks. And it's like, that makes me so happy. You know, it's like being able to find buried treasure. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to see what everyone else has got their nose buried in it because it's probably boring and stupid. You know, I want to find these these hidden treasures. And, wh- and when you find them and it's like these movies that are just so off the wall and just so layered with hidden meaning it's just makes it worth getting up in the morning great 
Yeah, and uh, and hopefully, um, yeah, we can follow up on this. I, the, uh, I, the the interview I just did with uh, Peter Robbins. Uh, it's interesting. He's going to dovetail very nicely. That that his you know his and I be like a companion piece. Yeah, yeah. We're we're totally looking at it from completely different you know mindsets. But this is great. All right, man. Okay. Hey, take care. Talk talk to you soon. Great. All talk, right, talk to you soon. Bye now. Bye bye. Whew.